Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Welcome, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Ryan Nicodemus is going to be joining us later in this episode. But first, I have the king of Kalamazoo here with me right now, (laughs) TK Coleman. Yo, I've never been called the king of Kalamazoo before, but that's my favorite title. (laughs) The king of Kalamazoo. (laughs) I need like an animal noise to make like, oh. And that lovely laugh you hear in the background, that is our good friend Malabama. She's back from Alabama. I sure am. She was there over the week and we've had some some complications on the minimalist team this, this past week. I'm sure we might dive into some of that later today. We've got the rest of our team here in the studio. Nicodemus will be joining us in a bit as well. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because advertisements suck. Let's start with our callers. You see, TK, I've got this phone here in front of me. You can give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice recording from your phone. Probably not this kind of phone, but from (laughs) your mobile phone. Send us a pristine recording right there from your phone. Try to keep it less than two minutes. Write your question down first and let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Susan. Hello, this is Susan from Toledo, and I'm a Patreon. My question's related to mindset, specifically abundance versus scarcity. Having grown up as the youngest of five in a blue-collar family, I developed a scarcity mindset, which has persisted throughout my adult life. Now retired, my husband and I live very comfortably on the proceeds of investments and savings, yet I am still acutely tuned in to the cost of things from the prices on menus and the draw to the clearance rack to the cost of hair and makeup for my daughter's upcoming wedding. How do I learn to relax and enjoy the benefits of years of hard work and saving without being so concerned about having enough? Susan, I want to acknowledge you for asking a question like this, because I think this is something we all struggle with, this sort of problem of scarcity. And as abundance becomes more abundant, we get paradoxically, an abundance of scarcity, or at least as she said, the scarcity mindset. What happens as we get more, we think we still don't have enough. And it's true. There are times in our lives where we don't have enough. We don't have enough food, enough sleep, enough water, enough time. We don't have enough meaningful relationships or meaningful work in our lives. And we need more of those things. But quite often in our society, we already have too much. And getting to enough has very little to do with acquiring more. Mm. Getting enough has to do with subtracting so we can can get back to what enough is. And TK, one thing that you have taught me is that an abundance mindset is the cure for this disease of false scarcity. Mm. Yeah, you know, false scarcity is when we choose to say no to something that we really want or need out of a sense of it would make me a bad person to say yes. 
and you've talked quite a bit about mimetic desire. We've talked a lot on this show about introjection, and we can take so many cultural values that don't belong to us and that aren't healthy for us, and we internalize them as this sense of guilt, and we mistake it for our conscience. Your conscience and your capacity to feel guilty are not one and the same. Sometimes your values can say, this is the right way for me to live. This is the way I can say, I, I, this is the thing I should say yes to. But you've got the voice of your mom, the voice of your boss in your head, making you feel bad about it. And so I kind of see false scarcity in those terms. You know, when I think about scarcity and the real problem with scarcity is when we don't have scarcity, but we feel that scarcity still. Mm. And even intellectually, I think this is where Susan is right now. Intellectually, she knows that she has enough or maybe even more than enough. But that emotional tug of, but happiness is just right around this corner. Or what if I lose it all? That's another kind of catastrophizing. So I'm not scarce now, but one or two bad things might happen. And so I'm going to worry about those things and focus on that bad outcome, that catastrophe that might potentially happen in some hypothetical future. I think about Professor Scott Galloway, who is a multimillionaire, probably nine-figure millionaire, hundreds of millions of dollars. And he even talks about, he looks at the world from a scarcity mindset. He Mm. feels as though he doesn't have enough. And I think a lot of that has to do with the cultural conditions that we come up in. If we grow up in a household like I did that just didn't have enough food, enough money, enough security, then that often permeates the rest of our lives. And what happened to me? Hmm. When I turned 18, I went out and got an entry-level sales job. By age 19, I was making $50,000 a year. Now, you can set it aside and say, well, Yeah, I was working 70, 80 hours a week and making $50,000, but that was more money than my mom had ever made in her lifetime. And I was 19 already paying my mom's rent. And what I did though, is I didn't say, oh, this abundance is nice. This gives me the freedom. And that's the nice thing about abundance. When you have true abundance and you have an abundance mindset around the things that you have, you have an incredible freedom. And what does it mean to be wealthy? Well, to be wealthy, well, to be rich really, means to spend less money than you earn, to give away fewer resources than you are able to acquire, right? Money is one of those resources. Time can be a resource. Your energy can be a resource. Your skills can be a type of abundance, right? But if we always feel like I need more, 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 like Scott Galloway, who has hundreds of millions of dollars, most likely, Even he can feel like, oh, I need to get more Mm. or I need to protect this. I need to cling. I need to hold on. I need more. I'm, if you have a hundred million dollars and you don't have enough, you will never have enough. Mm. If you have a free week, but you feel compelled to fill it, well, what, what is that right there? That's also a scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. So TK, can you talk to me about this problem of scarcity and why we invent scarcity when it's not actually there? Yeah, so enough is a funny term. If I were to say, hey, Josh, do you have enough time? The proper response to that is to ask for what? 
Because if I want to use your time for dinner or a game of basketball, the answer might be no. If I'm asking you, do you have enough time to make sure you get the rest that you need? The answer might be yes. So we always have to ask for what. And so whenever we're thinking about things like saving or preserving, there's a from component and then there is a for component. I'm saving my money from being wasted on things that I don't need so that I can use it for the things that matter most to me. So being sensitive to cost is not the same thing as having scarcity consciousness. To be sensitive to cost means that you have a sense of priority. Maybe I don't want to spend $75 on those jeans because that might compromise my ability to use those resources on something that matters even more than having the coolest pair of jeans. And so when you find yourself being sensitive to cost, that means you've got some unresolved issues concerning what it is you really want. If you're getting ready to spend money on something and you feel that, uh, I don't know if I wanna spend that, that sensitivity to cost means there's a priority that you gotta think about. And so the question I would ask myself when it comes to these kinds of things is, what is that thing that is so valuable to me that when I say yes to it, I do not feel conflicted? The investment I'm making into it feels right. What is that thing? Well, what you're talking about, it feels right. So intellectually, it might be right to you, but if it doesn't feel right, then it's also not right for you, right? I often hear people say, I'd love to be a minimalist, but I don't want to live in an empty house with stark white walls. It's like, okay, I get that. For me, that actually sounds great. That sounds peaceful. It sounds tranquil. But if you don't value that, mm -hmm. then that prescription you're going to be depriving yourself. You're actually putting yourself in an unnecessarily scarce environment. And what's that going to do? It's actually going to amplify the chaos. It's not going to give you peace. You're going to feel like you're trapped there. Oh, I don't have the things that I want. I want to live in a house with more colors or more brightness or more warmth or whatever it might be. There's nothing wrong with those things. If you deprive yourself unnecessarily, that's a scarcity mindset. The other side of the scarcity problem, though, is that we tell ourselves a story that worked for us during some period of time. I don't have enough money to buy this two or three or $4 cup of coffee, right? But at some point, maybe you do have enough money, but if you keep telling yourself that story, it can become disempowering because, oh, I want to experience this, but I don't have the ability to, or at least I'm telling myself I don't have the ability. I'm thinking about the time that Nicodemus and I were on book tour. We were in Nashville and we went to one of our favorite coffee shops. It's called Barista Parlor. And they have a few locations there in Nashville. And they had this special limited edition, small batch roast of coffee from Ethiopia. And it was like $24 for one cup of coffee. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so Ryan and I were like, hey, we're going to try this. We're going to split this actually. <laughs> and uh, we bought it. And here's the weird thing about it. I'm glad that I bought it, but I wouldn't do it again. Mm. And what do I mean by that? I would go back and do the same thing again, but I wouldn't keep on doing it because I wanted to pay for the experience. It was a novel experience and it was a decent cup of coffee. I don't know that it was worth $24 for me necessarily. For someone else, it might be. Mm -hmm. But if I need that now every single day, now I have to go out and spend $24. Well, what does that mean? Is this the best use of that resource? And if if the answer is yes, then 
okay, fine. For me, it's not. I make my coffee at home typically, and, uh, and, and that makes the most sense for me. But I also am not depriving myself in this scenario. And I think when we think about scarcity, what we're really thinking is, I don't have enough, and therefore I'm in a state of deprivation. But the truth is, you may not be depriving yourself at all. Quite often, the opposite is true. We end up depriving ourselves when we have a superabundance, an overabundance, too much stuff. It becomes what? Excess. And when we have excess, what do we do? We deprive ourselves of the meaningful experiences that are right there in front of us. That's right. You know, when it comes to the sorts of dilemmas that we face with allowing ourselves to enjoy the opportunities and, and blessings that we have in life, one, one, one thing that could, be, that could help is to ask yourself if you feel guilty about making that purchase or you're unable to, to enjoy your wealth, well, what do I think I ought to be doing with it instead? And maybe you feel like, well, I, I ought to be helping out people in need. Okay, go do it. Does that feel great? If you feel some resistance there, let's unpack that resistance. It doesn't mean you shouldn't help people in need. It might mean that right now you're arriving at that conclusion based on what someone else has argued you into thinking rather than on something you've thought through clearly. So yeah, do indeed help people, but let's come up with your own reasons. Or does it is it a thing of, well, I don't feel comfortable about my level of financial security. Okay, let's take a look at that. It may be the case that there are some things you need to do in order to feel good about the way you're planning for your future. Another element to keep in mind too is that it's not just about you. Your ability to enjoy your life also enriches the lives of other people. If you're with your children, you're with your spouse, you're with your friends, and you're, you're, you're having a good time or doing things together, and in the name of guilt-based self-deprivation, you say, I'm not gonna smile, I'm not gonna enjoy the coffee, I'm not gonna try anything new because I would be a bad person. Well, guess what? Now the people that are with you and around you can't really enjoy the fullness of who you are because you're following this guilt-based self-deprivation. Self-deprivation is cool if it's a deliberately used tool for self-actualization. If you're saying no to comforts and luxuries because there's some higher good you've identified that you want to pursue, by all means say no. But once you get caught up in that game of saying no because you think you're gonna be a bad person or it makes you feel guilty, well, now you're actually saying no to opportunities to connect and enhance other people's lives. You reminded me of something that Jed McKenna calls spiritual autolysis. Are you familiar with this word autolysis? No, that's a good term though. It's like when a cell begins to eat itself. I like to call it belief autolysis, Uh, what you're doing here. And we have a limiting belief. I should be doing something else with this money. I should be doing something else with my time. I should be working a different job. I should be doing something better with my life. I should improve myself. Okay, great. Well, what you do here is you get out a piece of paper and you write those beliefs down. And then you begin to get what's going on behind the belief. Write down, okay, why do I believe that? Okay, what's behind that? And then what's behind that? And your beliefs begin to eat themselves in a way. You realize that, oh, my belief around scarcity has a lot to do with how I was raised or the religion or environment in which I was brought up in. Or it has to do with the media and what the media is telling me or how advertisers are propagating particular message uh, messages to me through these different mediums. My beliefs aren't actually my beliefs most of the time. 
I've adopted a set of beliefs that have been handed to me through ideologies and dogmas and cultural influences. And if I begin to write those down and go through that belief autolysis, I realize that those beliefs begin to dissolve. And I can either A, make room for new beliefs, or B, what I prefer, is to make room for far fewer beliefs. I don't need to have all those beliefs. We have a lot of belief clutter in our lives. And as soon as you begin to examine it, they begin to dissipate. You ever had someone call you out on your shoulds? I should break up with that girl. Yeah, you should. Go ahead and break up with her. Oh, oh I don't mean that. I, I shouldn't go to that party. Yeah, you shouldn't. Stay home. Well, I, I mean, I, I, maybe I should go. Sometimes we hide behind our shoulds because we don't want to own what we really want. Sometimes we hide behind shoulds because we haven't done the hard work of thinking through what our real priorities are. And so we just say, I shouldn't, I should. And sometimes it's good to call yourself out on your shoulds. I shouldn't enjoy this coffee. I should donate it to charity. That's right, you should, go ahead and do it. Mm. And if you feel free, you found out what your priorities are. If you feel some resistance, let go of that word should, get that out of the way, and let's unpack what's really going on so you can know what your true priorities are and get on with the business of living a life where you feel good and lined up with your choices. I'm always asking that question, why should I? Anytime I should all over myself, okay, why should I? Oh, you should go to college. You should have a corporate career. You should buy a new car every two years. Okay, you can do those things, but why should I? Oh, because I want to, because it's going to enrich my life. It's going to add value in this way, this way, and this. Oh, okay. Or I don't know why I should. Ah, it's probably a good sign that I shouldn't then. Hmm. Kathy has a question for us. Hi, this is Kathy T. from San Francisco. After my mother died, I was able to let go of her things and donate them. But what she and my father left me is a little more difficult. They're ashes. I cannot just throw them out, cannot donate them. I thought of using them for composting, but that may be illegal. Not that I want to disrespect them by not wanting their ashes. That just feels wrong. My brother doesn't want them, and there's no one else left in the family. Do I buy two urns, buy one urn, and put both their ashes in it? Spreading their ashes over the sea just doesn't seem right since they lived their whole lives in New York and I live in California. Do you have any suggestions? Thank you. Oh, Kathy, I really sympathize with you. I had to go through the same thing with my mother's ashes. My mother was cremated, which really was the start of this whole minimalism journey. And I felt very similarly to Kathy. I need to hold on to these. And so I had a big urn and then I had a small urn that would fit on my mantle. So I actually had two urns of one person's yeah. ashes. And I can tell you what I did practically. But before we get there, I just want to say that what you're experiencing here is the residue of the past. And it has a way of, of staining the present moment whenever we cling to it. How should this be, right? I'm holding on to the way. And by the way, you say your brother doesn't even want the, and neither do you. I can hear it in your voice. You don't want them either. You feel like it's clutter. There's nothing wrong with holding on to ash. If you want to keep an urn to remember someone or a little small urn, or if you want, you can do whatever you want to do. Now, some people might come to your house and think it's a little bit creepy. 
but that's on them. It has nothing to do with you. Um, I tend to deal with death and really difficult problems of the heart with levity. When Ryan used to come over to my house, I'd have the urn on my mantle and uh, he would like talk to my mom and like hand her a ping pong paddle so we could try to play ping pong together. And uh, <laughs> we just have fun with it, right? Eventually, I was ready to let it go. And that might be where you are right now, Kathy. I don't know if you're ready to let go. But what I did is there's a park in Dayton, Ohio, Newcomb Park. And that's where we live for the longest time. And I spread her ashes over the park. And um, I had a bit of a, a secondary funeral, a celebration. And those celebrations allow us to let go. A funeral is a type of celebration. We did an episode called Funeral for Things. Sometimes to let go of a thing, we have to have a funeral to recognize the, the amount of joy and fulfillment we got during this period of time. And it's no longer serving us. And I think the same thing is obviously true with the people in our lives. Hmm. Those ashes are no longer your mother. They're a remnant. They're a residue from a chapter in your life. And if you decide that it's kind of getting in the way, well, it's okay to let them go. That's right. If your parents were the ashes, you would already be condemned for doing to them the two things that are most insulting to human beings, putting them in a container and putting them on a shelf. Isn't that what we say when we feel insulted by our friends? I feel like you just put me on a shelf, man, and you pick me up whenever you want me, whenever it's convenient for you. I feel like you're putting me in a box, putting me in a container, suppressing my limitations, man. Well, that's what you're doing when you have ashes of people that you love. You're putting them in a container and putting them on a shelf. So if they are the ashes, what an insult to them. But thankfully, it's not an insult. It's an honor. It's a way of remembering. Why? Because they are not the ashes, and the ashes are simply a means by which we commemorate them. When you get to a place where you feel like I need to let that go, it's important to understand that your, your, your feelings don't respect your shoulds, right? Like we all have opinions about how we ought to feel. I shouldn't feel sad. Well, guess what? Your capacity to feel sad isn't going to consult your shoulds. You're going to feel sad if you're genuinely sad about something. And believing that you shouldn't feel that way might make you feel guilty about feeling sad. And maybe that guilt, you know, inspires you to think critically about it. But at the end of the day, you're going to feel the way you feel and it's best to Put the should on a shelf and give yourself chance to be with those feelings and to be honest about it and to openly air it out and to just own it. There's nothing wrong at all with saying, I feel like this isn't the best way to honor them. I like Josh's idea here where, you know, you're right that going to the sea and, and just spreading it out over the beach or something like that isn't going to work. And the reason it isn't going to work is because that's someone else's idea. That's a stereotype. We all have that idea because we've all seen it in at least one movie or we've heard one person tell it. And you can't build a life on other people's ideas, other people's convictions. You got to build your life on your ideas and your convictions. And so you mentioned that the place they lived and that they loved was New York. This could be an opportunity for you to really connect with them by taking some time and making a list. What were the places they talked about? What were the experiences that mattered to them? Was there a favorite coffee shop or a restaurant in New York? Was there a favorite park that they liked to walk in? Where did they first meet? And then what you could do is you could leave a little piece of them in all of the different places that meant something to them. And you can make it a project that you do over time. You don't have to do it all in one week. You can say, oh, okay, yeah, when, when I make that trip over there, I'll bring a little piece with them. And then it can be a fun way of saying, I love you, dad. I love you, mom. 
I'm going to leave a piece of you in this place. And you're not leaving them behind, but you're giving that place a piece of them forever. And you're commemorating them in a way that actually means something to you. That would be one way you could let go. But ultimately, listen to your heart. I kept some of my mom's ashes and I've been using it in our coffee here at the studio. <laughs> Is that why it's been tasting funny? <laughs> she was really funny. so I'd... And and that's why I've had my complications. It was just all along. <laughs> the doctor was like, you've got ashes in your gut. Is there... <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for your question. Um, we've been going through some difficult things here at the studio as well. Um, TK was back in the hospital right after last week's podcast yeah. and uh, missed our last Friday afternoon minimal Zoom because he had the, he ended up back in the hospital. And anytime you face those moments of mortality, you realize like the health is the only thing that when it is scarce, nothing else matters. So we get back to this problem of of scarcity. What you're talking about here, when we hold on to someone's ashes and they're not serving us, in fact, they're, they kind of feel like a burden now, like they do for Kathy, it's holding on to something. It's creating more scarcity. Yeah, I didn't get enough time with my mom. I didn't. I, I wish I, I'd give anything to have one more conversation with her. But me holding on to her ashes is not going to give me that opportunity to have that tete-a-tete with my mother. Now, I can still speak to her, ashes or not. I can still thank her and express that gratitude, even if I don't see her in the physical form Mm. anymore. And and yet, holding on to the ashes doesn't help amplify that process for me. Alabama, you were just back in Alabama. Uh, Your grandfather passed away recently, and, and you were there for a funeral. Do you have any lessons here for Kathy? I know it's pretty fresh right now. Yeah. And and this is, I'm very fortunate to own, be able to count on one hand how many funerals I've attended. And the previous grandparent that I lost, we did cremate her and, and hold on to her ashes for about a year before we eventually um, buried those. We discovered her last um, desire was to be next to her parents on the other side of the country. And with my grandfather, it is a very interesting lesson of letting go. I took that book that you recommended from episode 400 of Necessary Endings by Dr. Henry Cloud, and he doesn't necessarily address death in that context, but a lot of it was applicable. So I I got a lot from that about how life is in cycles and seasons, and he passed away at, you know, just shy before 82. He lived a very long and full life. But going back to the health aspect of it, it was a it was a very rich and powerful wake-up call for a lot of us. We've said before on the podcast, I'm not sure who to attribute the quote to, but um, someone has said, I would rather attend a funeral than a party because of how much more it makes you aware of your life and, and everything and reflect on how you're living it. And a lot of that was from his bad health that had accumulated over the past 20 years. This was not a surprise to any of us, but it did make a lot of us step back and go, what are we doing that's within our power that we can take control of, whether it be our health, the way we're living our life, the way we're treating each other. And it was a huge moment of reflection for my entire family. It was the first time I'd seen everyone come together and treat each other noticeably different. Mm. There was less pettiness. And and of course there was, there was sorrow and crying as much as there was laughter, 
But there's this moment where you really are reminded we are not here forever. And how we treat ourselves and how we treat others is incredibly important. And that is, at the end of the day, what we take away with it. You have that time, you do with it what you do, you make the most of it, and then you let go. Yeah. The letting go is the piece here that you let go on your timeline. Now, the truth is that you don't get to decide when someone passes away. Mm. And so we want to hold on to that scarcity, right? Oh, I just wish I had more time. But what we do then is we commodify or objectify something that transcends the, the um, we objectify the person through the literal object, the urn or the ashes or whatever it might be. But then we do the same thing in our consumer lives as well. They become, the, our material possessions become proxies for the life we wish we could live. And so we have Pinterest boards filled with different expensive cars or expensive trips, or we commodify everything. We commodify living a meaningful life. And we step back and realize, well, I already have enough. What do I want to do with the few resources that I do have, with my time, with my attention? And it's probably not what I'm doing with my everyday life right now. If I were to strap a a GoPro onto your average person and they were forced to watch the last 24 hours of their life, they would look back and say, oh, I would have done that differently. I didn't realize how much time I was wasting every single day pursuing things that really weren't that meaningful to me. Kathy, I'd love to send you a copy of our book, Everything That Remains. It's really my story is in there of, of letting go of my mom's stuff. It was the beginning of this journey and going through all of her things. She had about three houses worth of stuff crammed into her tiny one-bedroom apartment. It's my favorite book that we've ever written, and it came out almost 10 years ago now. We're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of Everything That Remains. So, Kathy, if you like our podcast, I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version of Everything That Remains, or if you want the book book or the ebook version, Alabama will send one of those to you as well. Our next question is from Marilyn. Hi, guys. My name is Marilyn. I'm calling from Chicago. I've had the good fortune to have walked the Camino de Santiago a couple times in the past, and my goal is to walk it again next year. Since I'm already making the effort to eat a track and will blog about uh, along the way, I thought it might be an idea to also turn the effort into a fundraising opportunity for a good cause. Specifically, I'm interested in raising funds to dig a well in an underserved area of the world that desperately needs clean water. Water came to mind is having a natural connection to what I'll be doing. Again, as it's virtually impossible to hike 500 miles across Spain without a constant supply of clean water. However, I want to make sure that whatever organization I go through uh, would use the funds raised responsibly and that they keep the best interest of the community they serve in mind by completing a quality project. I remember you raised funds for a well in the past a few years ago. So my questions are, which organization did you go through? What vetting process did you use in screening them to determine they were a reputable charity? And after that vetting process, why did you select that organization versus other organizations who also did well? And in follow-up, do you have any insight into the end result of that project? Looking forward to your answers. All the best. Marilyn, what a beautiful question. 
few things for you. First off, yeah, the minimalists have collectively, and I say collectively, it's us and our audience, contributed to a bunch of different charitable or philanthropic causes over the last 12, 13 years. In fact, I've contributed much more to charity by making far less money personally because I realized you don't have to be rich in order to contribute beyond yourself in a meaningful way. It could be as simple as buying a cup of coffee for the person behind you in line. That's a way to contribute. Now, that makes you feel good. That's one reason to do it, but it's not the only reason to do it. There are a lot of people who need a lot of help. And her question, I think, is a practical one. How can I make sure that the good that I'm trying to do in the world, the contribution I'm trying to give, is actually going to be effective? It's actually going to help people. Because there are some charities, like Homeopaths Without Borders, that get a really low rating. They don't really help a whole lot of people, but they take a lot of money. Or there are a lot of charities that have really, really high administrative costs. So you might donate $100 to charity X and $81 of it is used for just the administrative and marketing aspects of the charity. There are other charities, however, like uh, Charity Water is a good example. They have a list of donors, a big money donors, who actually fund the administration of Charity Water. So 100% of the dollars you donate, and we've partnered with them a few times on uh, building wells in Malawi and a few other places uh, in underserved countries that don't have access to clean drinking water, which is a horrible problem for a lot of people. It creates a lot of disease and dysfunction and, well, death and in most extreme cases, right? And so what Charity Water does, it assures because they have the big dollar donors, every dollar you donate to a particular campaign actually goes directly to a specific well project. And you as a donor, TK, if you're like, I'm going to donate 20 bucks to this particular campaign, say Malabama or let's say Maryland, hooks up with uh, Charity Water. It's charitywater.org, by the way, not affiliated with them. Although I have sat down with their owner before. In fact, he was even on this podcast, Scott. And uh, we did a live event with him in New York back in 2017. If we have a link to that, we can put it in the show notes as well. And the way I vetted him was by asking a bunch of questions. And what I learned is that their money actually goes to the calls and 100% of it, and they keep you updated. So, oh, we're building these wells in Malawi. Here's where your $20 went, TK. You can see specifically that people were affected by your donation. There's another website that is called givewell.org, and they rank charities based on the most effective charities in the world. So I believe the top one on there right now is the Against Malaria Foundation, and we've partnered with them. In fact, uh, the minimalists, we donate money to them every single month, the Against Malaria Foundation, because one you know, one person who contributes roughly $2,500 saves a life. And they've just done the math on this. $2,500 <laughs> saves a life because they, they just give mosquito nets in areas that are highly affected by malaria. And we've learned that having enough mosquito nets in these areas actually save people's lives. Now, unfortunately, that's not very sexy. It doesn't make you feel very good, right? And so there are other things I'll just do because it feels good to me and it's closer to me. So in Dayton, Ohio, we helped build the grocery nonprofit, the food co-op on the west side of Dayton. One of the largest food deserts in the country didn't have a grocery store for over a decade, which means that 
people there bought their food or their food products from liquor stores or from Church's Chicken or McDonald's or whatever. And if you wanted to go to an actual grocery with real fresh food, you had to get on a long bus and sometimes it'd be a two-hour commute in order to get just regular food that we take so for granted. Mm-hmm. Now, was that the best use of that money? Probably Probably not. It was, probably wasn't as effective as buying mosquito nets, but that's just one way to measure it. For me, it was like, I want to serve the community in, in which I grew up and around. And so for me, the most compelling charities, those are the ones I tend to donate to. And I want to make sure there's some level of effectiveness that sort of permeates the the charity itself. So I'm not just throwing away money to just to, just to feel good. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned Scott and Charity Water. Talk about one advertisement that doesn't suck. That's one. That may be the one commercial that I actually watched till the end. I don't even do that with movie trailers, even when the movie looks good, because trailers suck and they just spoil them and tell you the whole movie. <laughs> but um, I, I watched that charity water story and I was so moved that I ended up going to watch Scott give a couple of talks on it. And I just started watching more videos on it. And I was just so moved by his story and everything that he did, what he was doing before that, how he started to recognize the problem and just the number of people he was able to mobilize. So really awesome thing. And I thought about him before you mentioned him as she was asking uh, this question here. One thing I'll I'll just say here to to, uh, add in is that when, when you're getting ready to make an investment or donation of any kind, it's perfectly fine to be transparent about that concern and to use it as a litmus test of sorts. To simply say, I want to be confident that the resources I am donating or raising will be used for the purposes that you have proposed. What sort of assurances do you provide for someone with that concern? If anyone gets defensive about that, that's automatically a red flag. But it's a green flag when people empathize with that question and they engage it with confidence. And and then you listen to their answer and see if you are impressed or compelled by their answer. And there are a few things you should look for in a good answer. Number one, what is their definition of what it means to be done, to have actually completed the project? Number two, what kind of deadline or time frame are they committed to? Number three, what type of accountability do they have if they fail to do what they said they were going to do when they were going to do it? Number four, what's their track record of past success? What other projects have they worked on? Is there something that's been completed in the past year or two? Or is the last project in the past five years? And how can you verify the completion of that project? And then lastly, What other organizations and people who are doing good things in the world are they affiliated with? Who is in their network? Who have they collaborated with? What are the donors have they had? And so on. Those are five things. There are probably even more, but those are five things that I I would look for uh, or I would even explicitly ask about if I don't see. And you don't have to be afraid to ask those things. Quite Mm -hmm. often we're afraid of offending someone, but guess what? If someone's offended and they want my money, (laughs) <laughs> Man, what a red flag that is, right? Yeah. Oh, I was just asking you a question. I want to give you money with no expectation that you give me something in return. So this is charity work, right? Mm. But if you're offended because I'm asking questions. Now, it's not to say that you couldn't ask unreasonable questions. Yeah. In fact, you could become so taxing on for your, I donated $20 and you're emailing them every day and asking. Of course, they could say, hey, just take your $20 back. This is actually costing us much more in this scenario. That's right. And you know, people who are excited about what they do and who truly believe in their vision, they get pumped up 
when you challenge them to establish why what they're doing is trustworthy and good. It's the people that are unsure of what they do. And sometimes it's a little disappointing when people say yes too easily because you don't get a chance to talk about, you know, all the the authority behind what you do, the credibility behind what you do. So yeah, don't be afraid to ask. What a great question. Thank you so much, Marilyn. We're going to move over to some social media questions. Chris from Instagram has something for us. When playing the minimalism game, how do you account for pieces of items? Is paperwork by page or by group? Do I count a whole shoe or the strings, the sole, and then the rest of the shoe separately? (laughs) Do do I cut my shoe up into a thousand pieces and now it's just confetti, right? Well, you got to separate the (laughs) shoestrings from the shoes. The answer is yes. That's right. (laughs) The answer is yes. We intentionally made the rules vague here. Why? Because the the minimalism game is really the momentum game. The 30-day minimalism game, you partner up with a friend, a family member, a coworker, you download the free calendar over at theminimalists.com slash game, and you decide we're going to get rid of some stuff. At the beginning of the month, you bet something. You bet a dollar or a fancy meal together or a million dollars. TK and I are currently in the middle of that bet. We're going to let me go of everything. <laughs> you should see how many shoestrings he's gotten rid of. <laughs> and what you do is you say, okay, I'm going to see who can go the longest because the average American household has 300,000 items in it. And because we have so much stuff, we don't even know where to get started. The point of the minimalism game is to get you started somewhere. First day of the month, you get rid of one item. Second day of the month, two items. Third day of the month, three items. It starts off really easy. Why does it start easy? Because if you go in your house today and say, you know what, I need to get rid of 500 items today, you just throw your hands up and say, I don't even know where to start. Mm -hmm. But if I need to get rid of one item, anyone can get rid of one item. Maybe you have an old coffee cup with a a Santa Claus on it who's having an amazing Christmas. I remember we were letting go of Ryan's stuff and he had like 40 coffee mugs. It certainly felt like that many. And he was holding on to so many of them just to guess, but he knew I can get rid of one of these for sure. And then it starts there. And the next day it's two items. I All right, I've already got rid of one thing, two more items. And so I tend to group things together. If you have a pair of shoes, count it as one item. If you're having trouble letting go though, yes, break it down into smaller chunks. But if you're really enjoying letting go, you can start chunking a bunch of things together. Maybe you have 40 coffee cups, but you know, you don't want any of them. That's one item today. I'm just going to turn it into one thing and it's going to let me let it go today. The only rule that we have is whatever you're letting go of that day needs to leave your house and thus your life by midnight. That's right. You know, the, the purpose of playing any game is to challenge yourself in a way that enhances your joy. That's why we play games. Games, by definition, aren't necessary. We don't have to play them. We choose to play them for the sake of joy and and, and, and what it's like dealing with some challenge. So when you're playing the minimalist game, it's useful to ask yourself, well, what's the best way to play this game that challenges me to go further? And so you want to take things lightly enough to make it as easy as possible for you to get started. So if separating the shoestrings from the shoe and dividing that up into two items is what it takes to get you started and get you going in the game, by all means, that's a legit way to play. But then if you find yourself feeling completely unchallenged and you're actually cheating yourself by saying, oh, you know what? 
uh, I'll just kind of show up today and uh, I'll count this as three pieces of paper. And so those are my three items for the next three days. Well, now you're not even playing the game. You're actually <laughs> treating the game as if it's something that's very religious and, you, and you, you can't afford it to fail and you have to succeed. And so now you're just breaking the rules in order to guarantee victory. And that's just not the purpose of the game. So keep playing the game. And if you maintain that spirit of play, you'll know how to play because you'll always be looking for that right balance of what keeps me going, but what also challenges me to get better as I go. And as soon as you become legalistic like that, I can think of there are times that my wife, daughter, and I will play the minimalism game. We'll play it together, not competing against each other because we don't have enough stuff to get rid of. Because if you go to the end of the month, you've gotten rid of almost 500 items. And it's a lot of stuff. And we'll start getting to the end of the month, like day 26. It's like, oh, I've got a bunch of paper clips I don't need. So here's 26 <laughs> paper clips. However, what would happen though, if I'm like, I, I legally, I must get rid of 26 items today. I use my paper clips all the time, but I'm going to go ahead and count out 26 of these. Well, now I'm just being wasteful. I'm getting rid of something that actually serves me in some way. The game is not meant to force you to let go of things that add value to your life. It's meant to identify those things that don't add value. We have so many of those things. Give you the momentum up front and then get progressively more challenges. Like when you play Tetris, it starts off almost way too easy. Mm-hmm. But if it started off on level 10 right away, you'd be like, I can't even, I, I can't play this game. And so the minimalism game doesn't start off on level 10. It starts off on level one and it progressively gets more difficult as the month goes on because you're building your letting go muscle in a way. That's right. I, I was playing my nephew in basketball when he was like 16 and I'm, I'm never playing him again. But, uh, <laughs> and he was 16 and the dude is just killing me. And I'm like, okay, I think I need to quit this game. <laughs> and I really felt like quitting the game. But then I said, well, wait a minute. Why am I playing the game? Mm. Am I playing the game only because I thought it was a guarantee that I'd win? Oof. Mm. I want to play this game because it's a way of connecting with my nephew. It's also a way of seeing where I'm at and seeing where he's at. And I can't fully experience that unless I play the game honestly. Yeah. And so I'm going to play this game and I'm going to play it with integrity, not because I'm an evil person if I quit, but because this is what lies up with why I chose to play this game. And so I just kept playing them and I kept letting them cross me over, kept letting them block my shot, kept letting them hit fadeaway jumpers on me. And it's a great memory and it's a great experience. And I'm glad I finished the game because I know where I stand and I allowed myself to be challenged in the way that makes fun possible. And that's what you have to do when you play the minimalist game or any other game. What is the way of play that pushes you in the way you want to be pushed? I love that. And even if you identify yourself as a minimalist, you can still play. Even if you lose, you're still getting rid of stuff that you no longer find intentional. Yeah. Danny Unknown went up to me last week and said, hey, you want to play? I was like, uh, um, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> so we got to meet after this and decide on a bet. We'll see how long and we'll report back on you guys. Yeah, let us know. We'll we'll uh, we'll have to check back in with you to see how that progress is going. And here's what I'll say. The most exciting part about the game for me as a minimalist family is when we fail because we're going to get to a failure point at some point. Yeah. We often have people who play this game well past the first month mm -hmm. and they'll get to day 32, 33, 34. Today, I'm letting go of 34 items or other people will play and say, I'm just starting over. So day one of the next month, 
It's easy again. It's just one item today. It's a bit of a reprieve. I'm going to continue letting go, continue building that letting go muscle each month until I get to that failure point. And that failure point is actually where you want to get. There's nothing else in my life to let go of because everything now adds value. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where I want to be. But in the future, the things that are adding value today, they may cease adding value. So I'm going to play that game again next year or next month or whenever it might be. Our next question is from Manny on Twitter slash X. What do you do with old chargers or cables? Do you trash them or can they be recycled by the company? I'm hanging on to them because I can't find a responsible way to dispose of them. Uh, yes, you're, you're trying to be generous here, and bravo for that. We often fret about being too stingy in our lives. This harkens back to the charity question we were answering earlier. No one ever regrets being too generous. And so this person, Manny, doesn't just want to throw away the chargers. I want someone else to be able to do something with them. And if you can sell them, great. I, and whenever I need a charger, the first place I go is onto eBay. Mm -hmm. And they're usually new or like new chargers there. And I can buy them at a radically reduced cost. However, if you don't want to hold on to it for a period of time that it takes to sell and you just want to get it out of your house, yeah, there's some things that you can do. In fact, I've got this article. We'll put a link to this in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. This is from familyhandyman.com. Here's what to do with your old chargers and cables. We'll talk about this practically and then maybe TK can butt in with some philosophical insights for us. If you've got a collection of outdated chargers, cables, or wires collecting dust, here's what you can do with them. Did you know that electronic waste is the fastest growing waste stream globally? This is due to both the shortened lifespan of our electronic devices and societies demanding for the newest high-tech products. The Environmental Protection Agency estimates that only 15 to 20% of e-waste is recycled. The rest of these electronics go directly into landfills, incinerators, or are illegally exported to developing countries. Common practice is to use an electronic device for a while and discard it once a new model comes out. Unfortunately, if the new model or device has a different charging port, it renders your old collection of charging cables virtually useless. So what do you do when it's time to clean out the drawer for of old no longer relevant cables. And they give you four options here. I just want to run you through them shortly. First one is a retail drop-off. I will often go to Best Buy, the local Best Buy. They have a little kiosk there, and you can even go to bestbuy.com, and you can see what cables, chargers, and things they'll accept. If you just don't want to deal with it, you don't want to start asking your friends and family and all this, you don't want to try to sell it, you don't think Goodwill is going to take this little charger, you can take it to Best Buy or a similar electronics retailer and they have the donation process. They will handle those electronics for you. The second thing is recycle. There are a lot of places where you can actually recycle. You may not be able to throw all the cables and chargers in your regular recycling bin, but here's what the article has to say about it. When removed from the sheath, pure copper wire can be sold for salvage. It likely won't be worth a fortune, but you can at least make some cash off old cables that you, you're never going to use again. Any metal recycling center will accept your copper corded wires and will likely accept most of your small electronics in addition to other wires and cables. You can also sell or recycle used electronics. So the 
the thing that I think about here, when I lived in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, we didn't have a trash service that came and picked up our trash. I used to have to drive to a trash dump and I drove to a recycling center. And part of that recycling center was metal. They, you could donate your metal. And they wouldn't pay us there, but a lot of recycling centers actually will pay people. In fact, it's why I often see in West Hollywood people going through all the trash cans in the mornings before trash day because they are getting out the metal so they can go sell it on their own. Now, it takes a little bit of work, but if you're willing to do the work, you can take it to a metal recycling place and they will do it for you. Uh, third thing is give it to a friend or family member. You did this recently, I think, with an old charger. Is that yeah, right, Yeah, I took it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Ma- it was perfectly timed because my this was for my laptop. My cable was starting to fray at the base and the wires were getting exposed. And I went, man, I'm going to have to buy a new one. And he texted in the group chat and said, hey, anybody need a charger? And I said, me, actually, please bring it to the studio. And it was one of those extra ones that you get sometimes when you buy a new phone or a new device. You know, you already have a charger and, and, and they put it in the bag. It's like, you got to take it. It comes with it, whatever. Yeah. And, and so it just kind of goes in a box because it's new. It's nice. I don't feel like selling it right now. And I was just going through some stuff like some of this has just got to go. And uh, it worked out really well. Thank you, TK. Yeah. And I would say there's one thing that's not on the list, but I have chargers as long as they still work with my devices. My idea of a rich life, as we talked about with Ramit Sethi, is having chargers in multiple rooms of my house, whether Mm. it's a phone charger, computer charger. And I have it in a rather aesthetic presentation. I would drill a hole in my shelf and there's like a charge stand underneath. And I just have a few cables that come up throughout the charge stand in my entryway. So you can charge a phone there or a computer there. You can charge a clock there. There are all these different things that I can charge right there. But then I also have a computer. I don't want to unplug that every time. I want to charge something in a different room. So I have a charger in my office or I have a charger here at the studio or I'll have a charger that I have in my laptop bag when I'm traveling. So it's not wrong or bad to have more than one charger. The question is, am I actually using these things, right? And if so, you don't have to feel compelled to get rid of it. But then when they're out of date, we have these examples for you as well. The final one is donate to a STEM program. Schools and many nonprofits have STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics programs, or projects that often use older technology. Your old cable cords, chargers, and wires very well may be so outdated uh, for... May, may not be so outdated that they're good for educational purposes. So it could be that a local STEM program or local school has a use for them. Now, it takes a little legwork on your part. You got to make some phone calls for that if you don't just want to go to Best Buy or to your local metal recycling center. Do you have any additional insights, TK? Uh, the, the one thing I'll add is that responsibility is the best combination of what is right and what you are capable of doing within reason. And so what that means is the responsible path for you might look different than the responsible path for someone else. Why is this important when it comes to getting rid of things? It's easy to fall prey to the trap of spending all of your time researching and researching to make the perfect decision about the perfect way to recycle. But if you're spending 12 months or six months obsessing over the right way to get rid of something, then you're still allowing that possession to rob you of your time and your life energy time and energy that could be going to family and other meaningful relationships, projects, and other things that are important to you. And so set aside an amount of time that is within reason for you and say, I'll look into this stuff that he just talked about one hour, one to two hours, I'll look into it. And then I know that no decision I ever make is going to be perfect and beyond the capacity for criticism. So I'm going to pick the best thing 
that seems reasonable to me based on that hour of research, and then I'm gonna move forward with my life. I'm gonna get rid of it in that way and move forward with my life. So as you're thinking about this in terms of that word you use, responsibility, remember, it's not just about what you think is right. It's not about being perfect. It's about what's, what's reasonable for you. And what you're talking about there is setting up a boundary. Can I sell this within a week? That is a boundary. But it also, that boundary forces you to take action now because I've set a deadline. It's a selling deadline. In fact, we call it the selling deadline rule. If you can get rid of it in a week, great. If not, I lower the price. If it's 30 days, I know I can't sell it. I'm not willing to sit on it any longer. I'm going to donate it. And then we gave you a bunch of resources here that you can take those old cables and chargers that you aren't going to use anymore. They're just getting in the way. They're literally tangling up your life and you can let them go. Our next question is from Kathy on Facebook. Is it really possible for positivity to be toxic? If it's toxic, then how can it be positive at all? Well, we did a TikTok video that we then posted on Facebook about toxic positivity, right? And I think it's fascinating because everything has a toxic dose, whether it's materialism or minimalism and even positivity. And so what I think Kathy's question illuminates here is like, we don't think about positivity and the, neg- the sort of downsides of, of faux positivity. Yeah, well, you know, to use an example here, I think orange juice is delicious. If I mix a cup of orange juice with a cup of chocolate milk, it now becomes gross. Well, <laughs> if something that is delicious is capable of being gross, how can it ever be delicious at all? The answer is this, by mingling it with something that is not compatible with. It's the same thing with positivity. Positivity is good for those circumstances and conditions where positivity is what we need. But when you mingle positivity with a situation that neither requires it or benefits from it, it then becomes toxic. One example of this could be you might be in a situation where what you need is some bad news. You need to be told something that truly sucks that truly feels bad. And you don't need to try to make it better with words or clean it up or pretend like it is anything other than what it is. And that's what makes honesty possible to say, hey, everybody, we're in a tough situation. And to not rush ourselves too quickly to be like, but it's gonna be okay. No, 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 we're in a tough situation. This is what it is. And this is what the consequences are gonna be. And this is what we're gonna have to do in order to get out of this situation. And it's gonna be incredibly hard. And I don't know if we're actually going to get there. That's our reality. Now, positivity then comes into play when I say, but we're not going to give up. I believe that if there's anybody that's capable of making it happen, it's us. But that positivity doesn't become useful until I've set that aside and prioritize being real about that negative stuff that nobody wants to hear. So positivity is toxic when it's used as an all-encompassing philosophy of life to the exclusion of other things that do not sound, look, or feel positive. We often say this about our stuff. If it doesn't serve a purpose, you can give yourself permission to let it go. But in this case, the positivity leading with that may not serve a purpose. And you can let it go for a moment. It doesn't mean you don't doesn't mean you have to let it go forever. You can pick it back up. But if I recognize this room is on fire right now, I'm like, hey guys, isn't this awesome? 
yeah. you would say, no, what, 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 are you, what are you talking about? You're delusional, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about with toxic positivity. It doesn't fit into the situation. Now, as TK just illuminated, the room's on fire. I can be like, hey, guys, the room's on fire. We got to get out of here. And afterward, I can have a positive mindset about it. Hey, you know what? We'd survive that. How great is it that we got out with our life? I can find the gratitude there. But in the moment, the positivity might actually keep me trapped in a burning room. Mm. That's right. And, and you know, we, we think it's really easy to see the futility of pretending to feel good when you don't feel good. But life presents us all with situations and moments that make it really tempting to talk positively and to present our lives in a positive manner when we know that doesn't reflect what we feel and know on the, on the, on the inside. And it's in those moments that this term positive toxicity or, or toxic positivity is for. It's when you force yourself to represent you or your life as positive when it's not. That's right. Yeah. And we often try to treat it as a mathematical equation, yeah. right? It's either good or bad. It is toxic or non-toxic or whatever. But often the toxicity is in the dosage. If nothing wrong with material possessions, we become hoarders when we reach a toxic level of materialism. There's nothing wrong with simplifying your life and letting go, but we become Spartanists and we've traveled far down the OCD spectrum. We can't hold on to anything. If everything in our life becomes slippery, our relationships, our possessions, our career, our friends, our loved ones, our family, if I can't hold on to any of it ever, well, that's not minimalism either. You've reached a toxic dose of letting go. And I would say the same thing is true. You know, we can't treat this like a, a math equation. Or if we do, we have to make it a situational math equation. So if if someone says, well, does one plus one equals what? I would say, well, it depends. One of what? Because one plus one doesn't always equal two. If I have one drop of water and I add one more drop of water, what do I have? Another drop of water. One plus one of what equals two? And I think about that here in this scenario because we try to intellectualize or make everything sort of an equation. It's either good or bad. It is this or that. It is right or wrong. It is should or shouldn't. But quite often these things are so perspectival and they're so situational. The positivity may not serve you in the situation you're in. If it does, great. I'm not encouraging you to throw it out the window. But if it doesn't serve you, it's okay to set it down for a moment and and approach the moment in a more realistic frame. One time I went to visit my cousin in Chicago. and he He could tell, I hadn't eaten in a few days, he could tell that something was off. And he says, hey, cuz, you good? And I say, yeah, man, you know me, baby, I'm good. He says, you good? I go, yeah, man, I'm, I'm cool, I'm cool. Cuz, you good? I mean, man, it don't, it don't even matter, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm cool, man, it's all good, it's all good. You good, cuz? Man, she's just tripping, you know what I mean? Like, she's tripping, <laughs> man. And then we start talking. And in that conversation, I'm opening up and I'm dealing with a lot of pain. I'm dealing with a lot of hurt. And after that conversation, I was able to be in the place of saying, thanks, man. 
appreciate that, right? He did me a service by not buying into my BS. He did it lovingly. He did it smoothly. But I'm thankful that he saw through that exterior of positivity and he didn't endorse that, which would have made it toxic. But he brought me out of that and allowed me to be negative. And in that negativity, I was able to get to a more positive place. TikTok that, Danny Unknown. (laughs) We're going to take a quick pandiculation break. We'll be back with Ryan Nicodemus in a moment. Welcome back, y'all. Alabama, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, which is now called X and another platform called Threads. And I don't know, what else are we on? WeChat, OnlyFans. <laughs> fams. <laughs> Only fams. <laughs> well, whatever is your preferred social media platform, we at at The Minimalist. You can find us at The Minimalist on any of those platforms. Now, during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. So you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. Looks like today's question is from Donut King. If luxury goods are a scam, what's the point in making money? Well, joining us on the phone right now is my good friend, (laughs) my best friend, Ryan Nicodemus. Ryan, how you doing? What's up, man? I love how you think of me when you're talking about luxury goods. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Nicodemus. You uh, you do seem expensive. TK. And so <laughs> before we get to Donut King's question, Ryan is is up in Montana right now. We thought it'd be great to have him join us for this. And Ryan, if you've got some extra time, maybe we'll have you stick around for some parts on the private podcast as well. We've got this minimalist home tour. It's a messy minimalist, which I obviously thought of you uh, as soon as... <laughs> As soon as they send him this picture. And we also have Caleb. He wants to know whether or not he should get rid of his old truck that he has. But right now we have a question from Donut King. If luxury goods are a scam, then what is the point of making money? This is in response to a video that just went crazy on all of our social media, but especially on TikTok. Millions and millions and millions of views hundreds of thousands of shares. People have been spreading this video because we talked about luxury goods being a scam to encourage poor people to want more, to go into debt. And so Donut King is questioning that assumption. Hey, if luxury goods are a scam, then what's the point of making money? You got something pithy for us, Ryan. Absolutely. You know, when I was listening to that video and considering this question, here's what came to mind. Expecting happiness from luxury goods is like anticipating a swimming pool from a flooded basement. So yes, um, maybe some luxury goods can bring you happiness uh, temporarily, but we know that it's not long lasting. So let's let me talk about these luxury goods for a second. Luxury goods. Luxury in general, on the surface, it sounds so appealing, right? I mean, even to me, because luxury is literally, it's the state of great comfort and extravagant living. Mm. But let's unpack this. To live extravagantly means to live a life that lacks restraint when spending money or using resources. Now, I'll tell you, a two-year-old lacks restraint. Yeah, They don't need money or resources to do so. 
And when it comes to comfort, as far as being in a state of physical uh, ease and, and freedom uh, from pain or constraint, it, this can be a wonderful place to be. It's great. But however, if you're at such a great sense of ease and free from all pain, I mean, that sounds paralyzing to me. I could even posit that, you know, living a comfortable lifestyle, the ultimate comfort is death, right? But of course, we all don't want that. Yeah. So I would just I would just say like these luxury goods it, they are fine to buy but you cannot expect to just buy luxury goods and expect it as this shortcut to being happy. Yeah, I love your analogy there, the swimming pool analogy. Like just because you have a bunch of water doesn't mean you have a swimming pool. Just because you have a bunch of luxury goods, that doesn't mean you have the happiness that you're actually seeking through purchasing those luxury goods. TK, what do you got for us? All right. First of all, did you get the joke? Tell me. You get the joke? This this is brilliant. It, it just occurred to me that this is the questioner's way of saying this question brought to you by Donut King. <laughs> I don't know what Donut King is. <laughs> donut King is an actual donut shop in LA. Oh, is wow. It really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> It's an advertisement. <laughs> Plus 60 seconds. He's already used 22 of his seconds on an advertisement. <laughs> oh my God. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. Business requires a product and a purchaser. A scam is when someone tricks you into being both of those things. What's the point of making money? To acquire the resources that we need to flourish and help other people do the same. The honest way to make that happen is to combine talent, discipline, and creativity to serve other people in a way that inspires them to exchange value with you. The scammer is the person who gives the middle finger to that entire process. Instead of saying, I'm going to get what I want by giving you what you want, what they say is, I'm going to use my knowledge of what you want to get you to give me what I want at your expense. Instead of saying relationships as an invitation to connect, collaborate, co-create, they see it as an opportunity to exploit, manipulate, and deceive. I don't even know why they call them artists. <laughs> they don't create at all. They're really leeches mm. who exploit people and suck the life out of those who do create. Yeah, and they do so in such a creative way that there's an artistry to it. But an artist, a true artist, actually adds value to someone's life right. through what they create. They don't extract the life out of other people in order to do what they do. Well, Scam anti-artists. Yes. Mm. And I think that's what happens here with luxury goods. When we entice someone so much, when we seduce them and over-promise and under-deliver, but we do so in a way that still abuts the, the culturally accepted norms, right? You can go down the street from here, Rodeo Drive, and you can see the Prada store or the Gucci store or the Louis Vuitton store. And you know if you go in there and you literally got every luxury good that they had, and you brought them home and you now owned them, you possessed them, what happens? Our possessions dispossess us. They make us less than human. We become a version of ourselves that is just a confection, a logo on the bag that says nothing about who I am. And that's why it really is a scam. It's a scam because we try to find a shortcut to our identity through these material goods. It's not to say there's anything wrong with a bag or there's anything wrong with a belt or a really nice shirt, but when that 
fills in for who I am as a person, it becomes an empty existence. In fact, we don't end up not even knowing who we are because as we let go, earlier we were talking, Ryan, we were talking about affluenza and mm. this idea of, of scarcity. And often what happens is we just try to pile accoutrements on. I don't know who I am, so I'll define myself through these material goods. Or even better yet, I'm a person of status, so thus I must signal to you with luxury goods. Mm. I've got something pithy for you, though. Money is not the finish line. It is the vehicle that can get us to our desired destination. I was talking to Danny Unknown recently, and he was offered a tech job somewhere other than the minimalist. And I said, oh, it sounds wonderful. Is it a, a hell yes for you? And he's like, well, no, not really, but the money is really good. And I said, okay, great. So the job itself doesn't have to be a hell yes. But is it going to be a vehicle that takes you to your hell yes? Is it going to take you to the destination? Because quite often, we opine for more money. If I could just have more money, then I'd be happy. Not knowing what enough might be. Nothing wrong with getting more money, but for what? What am I using this money for? What is it going to get me? And then I'm going to, I'm going to interrogate what's going on even behind that what? Oh, okay, I, it's going to get me a Lexus or a Mercedes or a Bugatti. Okay, what do I want that for? Oh, because I really enjoy driving fast. Okay, that's one thing. Maybe it's, oh, because other people will think highly of me. Oh, why do I want to do that? And you continue to question your why. Well, then you'll start to figure out who you really are. Hmm. And those luxury goods that you've heaped onto your pile, you might realize that luxury goods aren't just a scam, but they're, a different, they're just a different type of clutter. Hmm. Milmer, and that makes me think of a, an old minimal maxim about how a tool is as useful as its user. And that's what money is. It's a tool. And we can use it for all sorts of things. And there's nothing wrong with money. But as you're saying, and as you were telling Danny, it's like if we put that in the driver's seat, um, sometimes uh, that will act like a drunk driver. Sometimes it will get us maybe to the next place we need to get to. Um, but certainly if that's how we live our lives, then uh, yeah the car will end up crashing. Mm -hmm. Right. And it'll get us to the place we want to get to as long as we know where that destination is, right? Mm -hmm. Quite often, yep. we'll buy the luxury good. We don't even know the destination is going to take us to and mm -hmm. why we want to go there. Oh, because people will like me or appreciate me or it says something about who I am as an individual. Okay. Why do I want that? Why do I want to go where I think I'm going? And ultimately, as we begin to interrogate that, it's often a, a house of cards. Yeah, and it perpetuates the illusion that wealth can be consumed, that you can buy wealth, but wealth can't be consumed. Wealth has to be created. You can buy access to abundance, but abundance isn't wealth. Wealth is what you do with that abundance in order to make it useful, in order to create joy. So if I design a luxury good and I sell it to you, it's definitely wealth for me because I enjoy the process of creating something. I put my idea out into the world and gave you something and, and you gave me money for it. It's definitely wealth for me. For you, it's nothing more than an opportunity. It's access to a unique form of abundance that has now become the opportunity for wealth, but it doesn't become wealth until you establish a relationship with that thing you bought that enhances your joy and that enriches other people's lives, which is why many people who have a lot of these luxury goods, they aren't wealthy, they're prisoners of abundance. They're objects of envy, but their lives are not enviable because they don't have a relationship with the things in their lives that brings them joy.
Yeah, yeah. that's such a good point. Yeah. Ryan, we're going to check in with our Patreon Zoom call audience here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Did you know that you can hire the minimalist to speak at your company, university, event, or conference? Well, you can. We've spoken at Google, Apple, Harvard, and hundreds of other schools and organizations. And if you're interested in hiring the minimalist to speak at your organization, you can just go to theminimalists.com slash speaking. You can find all the details over there. You can also watch our speaking demo. Now, on the first Friday of each month, we do something that we call FAMS, the Friday afternoon minimalist Zooms. You can have a Zoom call with The Minimalists over at patreon.com slash The Minimalists. Anyone who subscribes to our video version of our private podcast gets access to that call. The last one we just did was outstanding. Hundreds of people attended that. Ryan and I were there. TK couldn't make it. He actually ended up in the hospital. We were talking about that earlier today. And um, Alabama was at a funeral, but they are usually there as well. And Danny's with us, Professor Sean. We'll get uh, post-production Peter there as well. And we just have a nice little online event with our audience once or sometimes even twice a month. And there's a whole community that's going on in the chat over there. Yeah. And Malabama has collected some of the questions we didn't get to during the chat. Malabama, give me one of those questions right now. Here's one I got from Derica. Can someone tell me where the mean voice in my head comes from? I've heard that parts theory says it's a protector, but it feels so negative. It's unreal, painful, and just not helpful. Uh, Ryan Nicodemus is the mean voice in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Rent free, huh? <laughs> Ryan, oh, man. Ryan, you struggle with that that uh, mean voice from time to time. Mm, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's I used to think that beating myself up was helpful. It was like somehow holding myself accountable. And so I continued to use it because I thought I was getting some type of reward out of it. And I don't know where along the lines, but someone kind of helped me see that beating myself up is not doing anything but uh, really preventing me from learning and preventing me from moving forward. I remember uh, a really clear moment for me when I uh, had basically um, forgot to... Um, uh, call someone or whatever it was. And, and I talked to them and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, da, da. And he's like, Hey man, he's like, if you want to make it up to me, uh, I, I can ask you to do one thing. He's like, do you want, do you want to make it up to me? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. He was like, okay, I want you to be nice to yourself right now. Be kind to yourself. It's mm. okay. And I'm telling you like him giving me that permission to be kind to myself. I didn't even realize I needed that permission. And so that is kind of what I do now, when that negative voice comes up, what I realize is this is, you know, maybe a uh, little nine-year-old Ryan Nicodemus judging 41-year-old self Ryan Nicodemus or whatever it is. But I can look at that voice and I can say, hey, I know that you're frustrated right now, but uh, I forgive me for this. And I think you should forgive me for this too. And it really helps me reframe it in a little bit of, of a different way. But yeah, that negative self-talk, it's not doing anything, even though it feels like it's doing something. It's just holding you back. If I had a friend who treated me as poorly as that voice in my head treats me, I would stop spending time with that person. Mm. I would remove that relationship from my life. I would let go because I would refuse to accept someone treating me as poorly as I treat myself. Yeah. Reminds yeah. me of Terrence McKenna. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ryan. No, no. I, I was just going to say real quickly. It's like we 
reserve we put a filter on when we're talking to other people, but we don't do it with ourselves because we feel like we don't need a filter with ourselves. But I would posit that we need that filter with ourselves more than anyone else. Wow. Yeah, for sure. So I was going to quote uh, Terrence McKenna. You quoted Jed earlier. Terrence McKenna says, so many times when we think we're thinking, we're actually being spoken to. You know, uh, just because a thought occurs inside your mind doesn't mean that the thought comes from you. Sometimes those voices are the voices of self-protection, but sometimes it's just the internalized voice of someone else. But here's the important thing. Sometimes, even if a thought does come from another person, it still might be good. And just because a thought originates with you doesn't mean it's a healthy one. And so more important than the question of where did this thought come from is where is it leading me and do I wish to follow? And so I would encourage anybody who's dealing with mean and negative thoughts to not get too trapped in the cycle of trying to figure out, you know, which thoughts come from your soul, which thoughts come from your mom, which thoughts come from your friend and your enemy. And I would simply be present with those thoughts and see how they feel. How do they land in my heart and in my body? And ask yourself, do I want to follow this thought? And if the answer is no, let it go, no matter who it comes from. Mm. I also think it's, it's partially cultural because you can look at people who are schizophrenic in America and the self-talk is detrimental. Oh, you don't deserve to exist. What a piece of crap you are. I can't believe you were even born. And it's a cultural thing because if you look at schizophrenics yeah. in a place like India, the voice in their head says something like, maybe you should do the dishes today. Maybe you should go to that yoga class. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe the voice in my head is an echo of what's going around me culturally. Culturally, what do I surround myself with? What are the messages? Who are the people? What are the things that I surround myself with? Because my mind simply amplifies whatever is going on around me. Now, these are the types of conversations that we have at the Friday afternoon minimalist Zooms. You can join us for our monthly Zoom call with The Minimalist, patreon.com slash The Minimalist. We're going to answer some more questions here on the private podcast. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. This is Kristen from Virginia. Um, and in episode 401, Josh shares how sometimes he's been perceived as harsh or cold. And I resonated with that. I've received that feedback at various points throughout my life. And I wanted to share a story. Um, so about five years ago, I was dating this guy. And as we were breaking up and parting ways, he told me, you know, you're really too direct. You should work on that. And I didn't think a whole lot of it, um, but it did sit with me. And fast forward a couple months later, and I started dating my now husband. And um, I never asked him what he thought of me being direct, but he actually brought it up on his own and said, I love how direct you are. It relieves so much anxiety knowing what page you're on. I never have to guess. And so that just got me thinking that, you know, we can't control people's perceptions of us. All we can do is be our best authentic selves, be kind and caring. But if people are going to have their perceptions, they're going to have them. And that's something I've been working on letting go of. 
Welcome back, y'all. We got one more question from our Friday afternoon minimal Zoom. The last one was outstanding. Looking forward to the next one already. I think we're going to do an impromptu one coming up really soon. So stay tuned. Stay tethered to your email inbox until we (laughs) notify you. No, we'll notify you in advance uh, generally. But you can always watch the recording after the fact as well if you can't join the live one. What did you aggregate for us, Malabama? I pulled another question. This one is from Chris. I've always felt like an outsider because I don't use social media. For example, I love to run, but most running events and groups are hosted on social media, making it hard to keep up to date with upcoming meets. Do you have any insights into how we can find like-minded people without using social media? I'm always amazed when I meet someone who doesn't have any social media accounts. And in fact, I'm impressed. In in today's society, it's it's a sign of one of two things. The person's incredibly out of touch or they're incredibly restrained. Mm -hmm. That level of discipline to just say no. One of my favorite memes, we've got to find it. um, Danny, we'll put it in the video version here above my shoulder. It is Killian Murphy. He's he plays Oppenheimer, right? Kelly Murphy played Oppenheimer. Yeah. He is being interviewed and someone asks him, What's your favorite meme? And he says, What's a meme? <laughs> so good. <laughs> oh. And then and then someone else, I think later in the interview, asked him, What's your favorite emoji to use? And he goes, I, I just prefer to spell the words correctly. But he's <laughs> he's not doing it in a judgmental way. The way he's doing it is like this, this incredibly innocent version of himself. And someone else asked him, well, uh, why aren't you on social media? He goes, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm just too old for it. I'm not really sure. Uh, In an interview promoting Oppenheimer recently, he was explaining how he has his phone in grayscale. And I meant to send it to you and I totally forgot. It's it's on one of our talk aboutables, actually. Oh, okay. Fantastic. I'll uh, I'll wait till we get to that then. Yeah. I don't know if it's on today's episode, but I think it might be next week. But we do have a talk aboutable about his, his grayscale phone even. And so what I appreciate about this is no one's looking at Killian Murphy and saying, oh, this idiot, he's so out of touch. I never let him into my running club or my biking group or my book club. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you your inappropriate comments. (laughs) So Ryan, I mean, you you faced this before as a man who doesn't have uh, Facebook anymore, um, and there are times where it is a hindrance, right? There are times I don't have a personal TikTok account, mm. and so when I want to see a video. I can't really see it. I have to go to the minimalist account or whatever, right? And so, w- which is fine. I think that we on the social media clutter episode that we did not that long ago, we identified there was something like 128 social media networks that have more than a million users. Mm -hmm. And so you realize like, actually, I don't use most of those things. Some people just take it a little bit further. They say, I don't use Instagram also. Yeah, the average person doesn't use 116 of those social media apps or 124 of those social media apps, but they use one or two. Some people just take it a step farther. Mm, That's right. You know, and being an outsider has its benefits. You know, there are arguments you don't have to participate in, responsibilities you don't have to carry, Noise you don't have to filter out. You know, somebody says, hey, have you heard about that thing? Like, oh, no, I haven't. I'm, I guess I'm free in relation to that. I don't have to have an opinion on it. I don't have to debate about it. I don't have to, you know, propose a solution. You know, I can move on and focus on what's important to me, you know. But, you know, one, one quick thing I'd say is that 
sometimes the best places to find out about events and connect with people that are at the events are the events themselves. A lot of these events have mail, uh, mailing lists. Um, a lot of these events, you can, um, a lot of people who are in those groups, and I know this from some of my own experiences, a lot of the people that are in these groups and deeply involved, they're also the same type of people who don't mind sending a text to someone that's not in the group, letting them know about it. So just think about the kind of person that's passionate about being online all day in the groups, knowing about all the different events and is super excited about it. That person is not going to have a problem at all texting you when there's something cool going on. So when you go to the events, take the time to connect with people, look for future events, flyers, or anything letting you know about what's going on, but just ask people to send you an email, give you a text, and it's a great way for you to make friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, meetup.org, or yeah, meetup.com, I should say, is a, is a great resource. And I know a lot of people are you know, trepidatious to even go there because it's very overwhelming. There's so many things to do in a lot of these cities, but it's like, if you can get some clarity around some of your interests, it's like, that's where you start. And you start cultivating those interests and and meeting other people with those interests. And you have to be open to the fact that uh, some of these groups, maybe a lot of them aren't going to be a good fit. And I know that that might feel like rejection, but it's not rejection. It's just simply not a good fit sometimes. But if you keep saying yes to yourself, you keep saying yes to others who are inviting you, eventually you're going to find your people. And the easier it gets, the more you practice. Yeah. And as long as you want to find those people, uh, for me, going to meetup.com would not work because I don't want to, I want to go to leavemealone.com. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Patent pending. Take my name out your phone. <laughs> tell us who you want to leave you alone and we'll get a hold of them and tell them to stop getting a hold of you. The funny thing is like, if you're a fan of the podcast or of our films or books or whatever, I love when people come up and say hi and get a hug and, and we, we share a moment, but I'm also not going out and seeking groups personally, but we set up something called minimalist.org, free local meetup groups in a hundred different cities. But part of that is you have to have a Facebook account. And so we've had literally hundreds, if not thousands of people start a Facebook account just to join, just to join that group. And that's another way you can handle this here. Right? You don't have to be on social media. You can set up a dummy account, a Finsta, as they call it, and you can have an account just for these meetups that you want to join. It doesn't mean you have to follow or conform to the traditional way that the average user uses social media. You can use social media in your own way without needing to adapt to the way it's quote unquote supposed to be used. We've got our amass it, amass it or trash it segment. Uh, you can send your amass it or trash it items to podcast at theminimalists.com. Also, your obsolete objects. You have something that's obsolete in your life and your sucky ads as well. Podcast at theminimalists.com. Alabama, this one is from Caleb, and I'm going to try to describe it to Ryan. We're looking at a picture of an old truck right now, Ryan. It's like an old F-150 or an F-250, and it looks really, I mean, it looks classic at this point. This is probably from the early 90s or late 80s, and uh, it is a stunning work of art to me, but also recognizing as I look at this right away, the first thing I see is, I bet there's a lot of upkeep or maintenance with this work of art. Mm. If you were to hand me a, a painting from Picasso, I'd say, oh, wow, this is great. Probably doesn't have a whole lot of upkeep. I don't have to change the oil on this and repair this painting. But Caleb is now wondering, should I amass this? Should I keep it? Or should I trash it? Should I let it go? Mm. Exactly. Here's what he had to say. He said, this 1994 Ford pickup truck that I bought from my father has been great for mountain and fishing trips since college. 
but it has about 94,000 miles on it and the transmission is already starting to go out. It'll cost about 5,000 to fix, but is only worth about 2,500. It's an extra vehicle that I use once or twice a month and I don't have the money to repair right now. My dad doesn't want me to sell it for parts as he's somewhat sentimental about it and claims new trucks cost 75 grand. This one only costs 5,000 to fix. So his solution is that he has offered to store it in his garage until I want to get it up and running again. What are your thoughts? TK, let's start with you. What are your initial thoughts to, to Caleb? If, if you were in his shoes, how would you think about this? First, I would make the decision that gives me the most peace and joy, not the decision that other people believe ought to give me the most peace and joy. Those are two different things. Someone else's idea about what I ought to be happy with is very different than what's going to actually make me happy. And so you don't have to be disrespectful towards dad to disagree or to discuss a contrary opinion with him, but I would balance out what he says with what's going on in your heart. Secondly, this is a time sensitive thing because you said it's only a matter of time before. So I'm thinking about this in terms of sports. You got an athlete who still has some trade value but maybe in another year or two, you won't be able to get anything in return for them. This might be the best time to let them go so that you can get something in return rather than sitting on something that's neither useful to you now nor will be useful to you in the future. I love to know if selling it is an option to your dad. He doesn't want you selling it for parts, but selling it as a whole to an owner who would be delighted to have that car. Is that cool with your dad? Because that could work for both of you, it sounds like to me. Uh, Ryan, you know this. I'm a big fan of old Range Rovers, like 1992 mm. uh, Town and Country Range Rover. They're stunning works of art. And every time I see one, I'll stop, I'll take a picture, I'll look at it, and I'll just sort of oogle it as a functional piece of art. And the truth is, I could afford one. I could buy, go out and buy one. and But I can't afford it in other ways. I can't afford the upkeep. I can't afford it breaking down on me constantly. I can't afford the amount of oil that's going to leak in my driveway. I can't afford the amount of time. And even if I could afford it, I'm not willing to spend that amount of time. And so I also can't afford the psychological clutter that goes along with constantly worrying about repairing this thing. So what I've chosen to do is appreciate it as a piece of art. And I enjoy it as a piece of art. Just like I look at this truck and I'm like, oh, this is definitely a piece of art. I don't need to own it. I don't need to consume it. It doesn't need to be mine in order for me to enjoy it. Ryan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, what keeps popping up for me is that acronym STEAM, right? Like it's it's all the resources we have available to us. So we've got our, our skills, our time, our energy, our attention, and of course, our money. And anything that we have in our life, not just our physical possessions, but anything, look at anything around you, anything that we're clinging to or holding on to, there is a cost to have those things in our lives. So the question is, is are the costs worth it? And Every, most of the things we have in our lives, like we can look at and say, yes, but this truck, clearly the costs are not worth it to the owner, but they are worth it to his father. And what I would say to him is like, you know, if it's so important to your father, if it is worth the costs to your father, maybe you can pass this over to him and, and have him uh, give the the resources that are needed to take care of this truck. But just because it's worth his resources to hang on that truck doesn't mean it has to be worth your resources. Man, that's so good, Ryan, because when he first said the father was like, I'll keep it. I was like, oh, cool. 
But then when he added that clause, until you're ready to get it up and going, it was like, oh, and so you're still on the hook. What's the benefit of letting him keep it again? Mm. You're still holding <laughs> on. It's just like a psychological kind of holding on. Yeah. yeah. To me, there's actually something beautiful about it. If you don't have to hold on to it and he can hold on to it for you and he's totally fine with that, you're not pawning off this truck on him. Hey, I need you. Because that would drive me crazy. If right. A friend's like, hey, man, can I uh, store all these boxes at your house <laughs> right. for six months? Like. Oh man, really? Yeah. Uh, but if I'm like, hey, I've got some extra, I've got this storage space here. And I know you're trying to get rid of your box. Now I'm accepting responsibility for those things. Mm-hmm. In fact, in an ideal world, it'd be awesome if like all the things that I needed access to, I didn't have to keep them at my house. I could just go to my neighbor's house and he loved having all of them. That sounds ideal, right? But if it becomes a burden on someone else, then of course it's also going to be a burden on you. We've got a minimalist home tour this week. This oh, is number yeah. 50 in our series. In Alabama, she titled this one Messy Minimalism. <laughs> it's from a Patreon subscriber. Jesse sent this in. What did Jesse have to say? Yeah, Jesse lives in Mishawaka, Indiana with her husband, three children, and dog in a two-story home with a basement. The thing that stood out to me was she said this, I wanted to add a few messier pictures. I did not want to pretend like I have it all figured out or that my home constantly looks put together. So if you subscribe to the video version of the Minimalist Private Podcast, you'll see every week on the weekends, we send out the Minimalist Home Tour photo or photos to you. And this photo here is of a children's room, and it looks relatively simple, but it's full of color still. And what she's embraced here is there's going to be some messiness when you have kids. And messiness is always relative. I lived with Nicodemus for seven months, actually longer than that, about a year in Missoula, Montana. And he only owns 12 things, but they're strewn all over the house. (laughs) Hey man, everything has its place. (laughs) And the place is always the floor. That's right. That's right. Well, it depends on which room, but yeah. <laughs> so, Ryan, I know you can't see this, but for the the benefit of our audio listeners here, I'm looking at a room right here with just two twin-sized beds. There's some art on the wall. Now, this isn't messy relative to your average kid's home it, it or average kid's bedroom. It's maybe messy relative to my bedroom, sure, but I would say that most bedrooms are probably messy relative to my bedroom. And so the question with messiness is, what is the level that gets in the way of my peace? And then what is the level that I'm willing to accept that I don't have to be neurotic about this space? That's right. Messy isn't inherently bad. There are lots of good things in life that are messy. Creativity can be messy. Making love can be messy. Cooking a family meal can be messy. Heck, when I went to the hospital and they stuck that NG tube up my nose, down my throat, into my stomach, pumping things out, that was pretty messy. Mm. But that messiness was a sign of healing. Sometimes messy is a sign that a good time is being had. Sometimes messy is a sign of many wonderful things like creativity and flourishing. And so the question is, what is the context that gives meaning to the mess? Or what is the thing that is so beautiful that that mess is just an opportunity cost that we're more than delighted to pay. If you waste your time trying to clean up everything that is a mess, you'll also end up getting rid of the creativity and the beauty as well. Mm. Argentina can be messy as well. (laughs) (laughs) My hair can be messy. (laughs) All sorts of things can be messy. No, I think about like minimalism and how 
it is represented most often with this very sleek, crisp corners, um, very little, very little uh, clutter in the room. And, and that's a beautiful version of minimalism. And I would say that, you know, that is an aesthetic uh, version of minimalism. And of course, the less things you own, the easier it is to be in that state. But when it comes to minimalism, I mean, even in those perfect, picture perfect minimalist homes, they still get messy sometimes. That's right. Now, not, not as messy. So when, when the mess is in front of you, Minimalism is the tool that can help you take care of that mess, get rid of that mess. And again, the less stuff you own, the less stuff you have to clean up. So cleaning up that mess can even be a little bit easier. And it's it's just something that in life we have to accept that like, yes, there's a mess that's made. We clean it up. It gets messy again. We clean it up again. It's a practice that we do to keep a clean home so we can have a clean mind. When I see this picture, Ryan, I think you're spot on because what we're talking about here, I would look at this and I wouldn't think minimalist or minimalism. But when we talk about minimalism being a tool, it's like when I look at a a house, I don't think hammer. I don't think nails. I don't think chainsaw. But all of those things were required for the house. So minimalism Mm -hmm. helped simplify this room to a level that Jessie and her kids feel good about. You use the tool of simplicity to get to where you want to be, not where TK or Ryan or I say you should be. Yeah, and that's the distinction between minimalism as a philosophy of design and minimalism as the process of simplifying your life in a way that brings you joy. For her, she has minimized something that a lot of people don't know how to minimize, and that is the stress that they feel over something not being prim and proper. Love that. So what are you actually trying to minimize here? Because it could be material possessions, but then what's the what behind that? Why do I want fewer material possessions? Not just because of deprivation. I want more, a calmer living space. Okay, great. But I still need some stuff to accomplish that. Because you know it would be chaotic if you took all of the possessions out of this room. And then you just have an empty room and you've lost some of the functionality there. You've actually introduced chaos by subtracting too much. You've subtracted just enough for you. Nicodemus, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it, brother. We love you, man. Thanks for having me. I love I love each and every one of you. Sign up for his monthly mentoring messages, ryannicodemus.com. Of course, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Links to that in the show notes as well. Love you, brother. Love you too. See ya. Love you, man. Peace out. A special shout out to Messa Jesse. I'm sorry. I just had to to say it. I I, I couldn't control myself. (laughs) That's why I get fired. That's why I get fired. What a way to go. Messy Jesse. I've got a few talk about for you. Uh, Let's see here. Prince EA, we're going to punt him again. Maybe we just skip this one altogether because PK. Can you name one thing in this photo? Just one thing. And, you know, even bring it closer. Look at it right now. He can't see. You just bring the whole thing over, Mally. Oh, my gosh. This stresses me out. <laughs> Can you name one thing in this photo? If you're listening to the audio version of this, there is a photo. Give it to TK. Come on. You can do this. Can I identify what something is? <laughs> name one thing in this photo. Okay. First of all, I thought you were asking me a question that it would be impossible not to answer. I don't know what I'm looking at here. I'm just looking exactly, at exactly, man, an amorphous blob of stuff. 
of clutter, of stuff, of excess, of hoarding, of uselessness, of superabundance, of overabundance. We own too much stuff. And this photo is the perfect representation when we have heaped so many possessions into our lives. What happens? We can't even name the things that we own. If you're just listening to the audio version, there's a picture here full of stuff. I'm going to put a link to this specific picture in the show notes so you can see it for yourself if you're not watching the video version of the podcast right now. But my goodness, if you look at this picture, I can't name a single thing in there. Maybe there's some jewelry. I'm not really sure. Although I would just call it trash. Yeah. And look, for for our listeners, what I'm looking at right now, I mean, you would think that you can identify one thing, right? Like, oh, there's a bed or or a pillow or a stuffed animal. But there's something which could be possibly construed as a stuffed animal-like thing, but it's not quite clear. I can't even say blanket, bed, desk. I mean, stuff has to sit on something. I can't even say floor. I don't even know what the stuff is on. Yeah, we'd really describe it if we could, folks. Like, yeah. this is what the world looks like without my glasses on. That's how how indescribable it is. This is what the world looks like when you say yes to everything. Ooh. I'm, oh. I am going to accept that into my life. It's a bunch of micro yeses. I'll buy this. I'll take the free good. I'll take the tchotchke. I need this. I'll hold on to this. I can't let go of that because just in case, I'll, I'll hold on to this one because someday I know that it could potentially be useful. And then what happens is it all becomes useless. It becomes an amorphous blob of clutter, of trash, of excess, of anxiety. I look at this picture and I think, oh, how stressed out would I be if this was my home or my living room or my bathroom or my closet, or if this was my garage or my attic, I would want to do something about this immediately because of the internal clutter that it would cause in my everyday well-being. It's crazy. I challenge is that you. an optical illusion or do you, do you know who originated this or what it actually is? Well, I don't want to ruin it. So in the comments, let us know what you think huh. is in this photo. I'm really curious if you can make out just one thing hmm. from this photo. All right, Alabama, you had another talk about it before. So last week we were talking with Light Watkins about travel. And one thing that didn't come up is safety precautions specifically for women. So you had uh, a bit of a follow-up from last week's episode. I did. And this is the second time we've talked about travel and I've thought about interjecting and it just didn't feel appropriate. But I do think it's important to acknowledge solo travel for women is different than solo travel for men. We have to think about things in a very defensive manner when we go about the world, especially traveling abroad, especially if you don't really have the street smarts to know how to carry yourself and how to look out for certain things or people that might try to take advantage of you. Um, There was a great article with the New York Times a couple of years ago that came out called Don't Succumb to the Fear. And it's just a collection of different women who have traveled all over the world sharing their travel safety tips. Um, If you want to look at it practically, there's a couple of things I picked up from this that I really liked. And it's things like pack a doorstop. 
um, learn how to defend yourself. That's a huge thing for me. Why pack a doorstop? Because that's not yeah, even intuitive sure. to me. So when you pack a doorstop, you are in a position to where you can put that on the inside of the door of wherever you're staying so that if the lock is not very strong, there is a lot more resistance to where someone cannot just burst into the door quite as easy. You have a little bit more time to prepare or it can at least stop them from coming in. Mm. Um, learning to defend yourself is a huge motivator for me taking on Brazilian jiu-jitsu. LA is the first city I've ever lived in. And if I have to go walk somewhere myself, I want to know that I can hold my own and be able to get away should someone try to grab me that may be bigger than me. That's been a good thing for me. Taking group tours when you're visiting a different place so that there are people around you that can be looking out for you, holding you, holding accountable other people, splitting up your cash. These are all things that I didn't grow up learning because I grew up in different environments where people looked out for each other. That was just what you did. But not everybody is going to do that. There are people out there that want to hurt you. And that's really hard to wrap your brain around until it happens. And that can be devastating. But I do want to talk about how you still can have those deep connections with travel. The story that really stuck out to me with Light Watkins when he went to Budapest and he ran into the lady who offered him a place to stay I looked at Josh and said, man, if I did that, I'd be sex trafficked. Mm. He's a six foot, whatever, big, strong looking guy. And I'm a five foot six, average looking gal. That's not necessarily to say that it can't happen. You can still have those beautiful connections. A lot of cultures have high respect for elders. So if you are in a marketplace, talk to them, buy some things, things that you are already looking for, tell them how long you're staying, learn about their culture that way. And be able to connect in a meaningful way, like a like a passing neighbor that you're coming through. People will still look out for you in that way. You can still have those connections. I just, I wanted to speak to the women in particular. Don't fear solo travel. Don't listen to these conversations and go, oh, it's so easy for them to say no one's going to mess with them. No one's going to mess with you either. You don't need to fear this. You can still do this stuff scared, but you can do it prepared too. Yeah, and I think that's the key. We prepare so we don't have to worry. The opposite is often true. What happens is, yes, there are dangerous parts of the world. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wrap myself in my proverbial bubble. I think about my wife, who is very well-traveled as a solo traveler and a solo camper. And she doesn't have any—now, she grew up doing a lot of solo backpacking and camping— long trips on her own, moments of solitude, stretches of solitude by herself. And so she became comfortable with it, but also prepared for certain dangers, whether that's a first aid kit if something happens, mm -hmm. or it is jumper cables if if your car goes bad, or it could be a handgun if you're out in the, the wilderness and you're worried about that. But what you're doing there, as opposed to always looking for danger everywhere you go, it is being concerned enough to be prepared and allowing that prep preparation to remove mm the unnecessary, the excess worry from your life. TK, do you have any insights on this? Yeah, when Bama mentioned the doorstop, she made me think about a gentleman by the name of John Correa, who has an excellent YouTube ch channel devoted to self-defense. Not in the sense of like, let me show you how to do karate, but in the sense of real life situations, a lot of them that are more relevant to women, like, hey, 
you're at the gas station and you're pumping gas and you see some strange, weird looking dude who's making you uncomfortable. What are some things you can be mindful of in that moment? What are some important do's and don'ts to to minimize the probability of you being abducted or assaulted and things along those lines? And he gives a lot of counterintuitive advice. And what he does is he shows videos where it can be a woman, a little girl, sometimes a guy who's in some sort of situation and there's someone that is a clear threat to their security. And in some of those situations, they turn out okay. And he points out, here's what this person did well Mm -hmm. and how you can implement that. Or here's what this person could have done differently. No judgment, but here's how you can learn from this. And so the doorstop is an example of something that he talks about all the time. A person might say, well, look, a doorstop isn't a padlock. It's not going to keep someone from being able to come in if they're determined enough. But John Correa says, when you are in any threatening situation, every second counts because every moment of time gives you the capacity to think, to orient yourself, and to react properly. If someone intends to do you harm, they're already prepared. And what gives them the leverage in that moment is that you're not. And so it levels the playing field. So if it takes me 10 seconds If it takes someone 10 seconds to break into my home, that's better than it taking them two seconds because even though it doesn't guarantee my success, that eight seconds of thought gives me the opportunity to achieve some kind of upper hand or do something that can help maximize the probability of my success. So definitely those little things like that can accumulate and make a big difference. But I would check out his channel for sure. That's wonderful. I just want to add to that. You can take the time to practice these just like a fire drill, just like an earthquake drill, any of that. Bless my husband because he gets thrown around all the time by me practicing things like chokes and submissions. Should somebody try to take advantage of me, you can reach out to your loved ones and your friends and say, hey, can you look at this video with me and help me practice so that I feel comfortable knowing hopefully I'll never need this, but should I need it, I can implement this and I can get away. I'm a fan of John Korea's channel as well. And so like things like handguns or firearms in general, they... they they spook a lot of people, right? And they're like, ah, I'm scared of that. And so I'm just going to tune that out. And he talks about things like pepper spray. And there are alternatives to that. If you are, if you're overwhelmed with fear and terror, because is it true that there are some people out there that want to hurt you? Absolutely. But if you go into every interaction thinking, is this a person that wants to hurt me? It's actually going to hurt you in a different way. That's right. That's right. We'll put a link to his channel in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast or over at patreon.com in the show notes there as well. You know what? One more talk aboutable since we do have some time. This video is from Prince EA. Why does our society worship all the things that make us sick? Sick mentally, sick emotionally, and also physically sick. Check out this video from Prince EA. If I was the devil low-key, I'd be behind the scenes. You wouldn't have to see me. I would normalize dysfunction and call it reality TV. And in this reality, I would attack your self-worth, making it hard to heal from. I'd show you images of fake bodies and make them more attractive than real ones. If I was the devil, I'd make you pray to technology and idolize those who create it. I'd make clout the number one drug and steal millions of lost souls as they chased it. This is just an excerpt from a video. We'll put a link to the full video in the show notes. Prince EA is a spoken word poet. And this one has a message about our current culture right now when things are taken to the extreme and a super abundance of certain things. We go seeking what? 
clout. When we're completely comfortable, I need clout. I mean, that's been like the big thing now. People are willing to do so many extreme, dangerous, awful, hateful things that forsake the people around us and also forsake our own well-being in order to get clout or to get addicted to technology or what do you say to create the fake bodies and yeah. say that they look better than real ones or getting people addicted to reality TV and yeah. pretending that's reality. That's right, man. And you know, like Light mentioned when he was on the show, there's nothing wrong with saying when I make a video of myself, I'm going to choose the best corner in my room with the nice photo behind me or something along those lines. That's not what's dangerous. What's dangerous is the difficulty with which we can access those ugly and difficult aspects of other people's lives that give us a balanced picture. And so we're aware of all our messiness, mm. but when we look at other people, we don't see their messiness. And it is easier than ever to be like, I'm the only one that's not making money. I'm the only one that's having a hard time getting a job. I'm the only one that's sad about this. I'm the only one that's stressed because everybody else is looking beautiful. Even if they're not trying to be fake, the mediums are designed to only showcase one little side of us. And it, it's become more important than ever to get off the screen, not because screens are evil, but because screens are not a substitute for the nuanced pers perspective on life that can only be conveyed through relationship. You need real contact with real people in nuanced situations to kind of get that balanced view of life. And that's the real problem. We are now substituting beauty with faux beauty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We had Erwin Raphael McManus on the podcast and he'll be back real soon. But one of the things that we talked about is beauty is essential. It's not an afterthought. It is not merely a byproduct of something. It is an essential part of life. And you notice this when you go out into nature, how stunning, how beautiful it actually is. So much so that what do we do? We put giant screensavers on our desktops or our phones of nature because we intrinsically know that this is beauty. This is perfect, not in a flawless sense, but in a sense that this is perfect. This is completely done as it is. And what do we try to do? We circumvent that. We supplement it. And there's nothing wrong with that, with using a device. But when that becomes the primary source of our beauty, it starts to scramble our brains a little bit and we become aesthetically misaligned and we begin to think certain mm. things are of a higher value than the natural beauty of the natural world. This makes me think about uh, this movie I watched when I was a kid. Y'all ever heard of this? Uh, Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, yes. <laughs> Where those guys go over to, uh, to Bernie's place and he's like wealthy, whatever. And Bernie dies and they're just so afraid of people thinking that they are responsible for it, that they just prop him up and carry him around. So they're at the beach and somebody walks by, hi, Bernie. And they hold up his arm, hi there. And these guys are literally living their lives with something that is dead for the sake of maintaining appearances. And that's what a lot of this stuff is doing to us. We are living lives that not only make us dead inside, but lives that aren't even real for the sake of not looking like something we don't wanna be perceived as, for the sake of fitting in, for the sake of people being like, oh, okay, you're sufficiently normal. And that's one of the things I get out of Prince E saying, 
the normalization of dysfunction. That's what that looks like. Yeah. We'll put a link to that video in the show notes so you can take a look at it. But right now, let's read some more about less. A few months ago, T.K. Coleman handed me this book. And the reason I called him the king of Kalamazoo earlier today is because the bookmark in there was from Kalamazoo. And the book is called The Best Science Fiction Stories of the Year. I think it's from 1971-ish. And um, so well before anyone in this room was born. However, um, I don't typically read science fiction. I don't like science fiction. I tr- I've tried to read science fiction. Yeah. One of my closest friends, Colin Wright, has written several science fiction books. And for whatever reason, I tend to not be able to get into science fiction. Yeah. Films as well. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but by and large, I don't really get into science fiction. But you handed me a story that was science fiction, but it actually resonated with me. What is the title of the story and who's it by in Alabama? This is called The Power of the Sentence by David M. Locke. And I selected an excerpt for you to read, and I'm curious about why TK wanted to hand this over to me, why he thought I would find value. And he was actually right, but I'm actually curious to have a conversation (laughs) about this. Go ahead. Good morning, everybody. As I promised last week, or threatened, as some of you think, I'm sure, today we're going to have a little chat about the sentence. The sentence, ah, the sentence. As I've indicated to you before, the sentence is one of man's most powerful inventions, ranking, I dare say, right up there with fire and the wheel. Blessed be the man who discovered the sentence. For the sentence, ladies and gentlemen, is the chief unit of thought. As you know, thought deals with relationships, with identities, similarities, differences, comparisons. Thought takes note of cause and effect of action and reaction, stimulus and response. Thought observes the properties of things. It tries to bring order to the disorder we perceive around us. And the principal tool that we employ in all of these thoughtful endeavors is the sentence. Simply that, the sentence. Yes, I know you learn other basic principles in your psychology and philosophy courses. You learn about the deductive and inductive logic about syllogisms and the scientific method, about symbolic logic and all the rest. But these are merely elaborations of the sentence. Even the equations of the mathematician are representations of the sentences. Our basic thinking is done with sentences. And the sentence is far more subtle and flexible than is the product of the logician or the mathematician. And every bit as true. Truer, if you want my opinion. Furthermore, just as the sentence is the chief unit of thought, so is it our principal mode of communication. When you wish to convey a thought to someone else, you do it via a sentence. A word, a name, a phrase might serve to attract his attention, to answer his question, or refer him to some particular object. But are thinking about. Only with sentences can you convey to his... Only with sentences will you really be able to tell him what you mind, what is in yours. The sentence, then, is the mechanism by which we think, and also it is the medium by which we transfer our thoughts to others. The sentence quite literally liberates our thoughts from the prisons of our minds and recreates them in the minds of others where they live anew. Through the power of the sentence, my thoughts can become your thoughts. And even more remarkably, Julius Caesar's thoughts, Shakespeare's thoughts, can become ours. 
All Gaul is divided into three parts. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Which brings us to our last subject, English composition. You are here, ladies and gentlemen, to learn how to write. Some of you, I hope, will be competent writers. But all of you, I shall insist, must learn, if nothing else, at least how to write a simple sentence. Ladies and gentlemen, do not underestimate the power of the English sentence. It can be a thing of sublime beauty, enormous strength, or delicate charm. If you learn to master the sentence, you will find that it serves you faithfully and well. More than that, it will furnish you with riches of expression beyond your every dream. But, you ask, what is this marvelous thing, the sentence, and how do I master it? Or perhaps you say, I have, have I not been using sentences my life? What is it about the sentence that I do not know? I shall answer the last question first. Everything. What you do not know about the sentence is everything. What you are speaking and writing are barbarisms. They bear no resemblance whatsoever to the English language. The language of the masters is not your language, but it can be. Let us proceed. TK, I really enjoyed this story because mm-hmm. as I was reading it, mm-hmm. most of it is actually a flashback to a recording that took place in a college um, without giving too much away, I certainly don't don't want to spoil the ending of it. But what happens is there's a professor teaching to a classroom of students about different types of sentences, and it starts off like a regular grammar lesson that I might teach in how to write better, how to write better.org, or you can check out the, the YouTube channel for my writing lessons. But what I like about this is it begins to unravel and he's going through different types of sentences. He's talking about interrogative sentences and simple sentences and compound sentences and complex sentences. And he's making distinctions between these different types of sentences and when it's appropriate to use them. It actually is a a writing lesson in a way. But what I absolutely enjoyed is as he's giving examples of different sentences, there's a story unfolding in the sentences he's using as an example. And I'd never seen a story approached this way before, where it's like several layers deep. It's a it's like metafiction, like Donald Bartholomew or, or, or John Barth, where it, it's self-referential in a way, but there was something different about this. What stood out from the story to you? Well, I could tell you why I enjoyed it, but let me sit that on the shelf, even at the risk of not being able to talk about it. I want to tell you why I shared it with you, because um, those are two very different reasons. I've enjoyed many things, but I've never recommended a book or a story to you before. This is the first. Hmm. So you ever had the experience of meeting someone and you go, holy smokes, this guy reminds me so much of Ryan or so much of my brother Lamar or whatever. And and then you think, oh, it would be so great if I could introduce these two to each other. Would they hate each other for being so much alike? Would they recognize themselves in each other in the way I see themselves in each other? What would that be like? Well, when I read this story, I had that moment with Josh because from the moment I read the first sentence... Josh emerged in my imagination as the professor. And I literally could not read a word of that story that was not heard in his voice. And I thought to myself, man, if I were the casting agent, 
making a film out of this, this would have to be Josh in this role. It sounded like him. It had his spirit, his energy. I'm like, this is Josh. The writer must have met Josh, but clearly not. Um, And so I thought to myself, I got to get him to read it. I don't even care if he doesn't like the story. I just want to know if he sees himself in it Mm. or if he's shocked by that comparison. Fascinating. It very much reminds me of the way that I talk about writing, especially with the thoughts piece. Because... For me, I call it an exchange of consciousness. To me, that's the most beautiful thing about writing. My favorite author, David Foster Wallace, he's not alive, but I have access to a piece of his consciousness. And so the thing that I love most about writing for an audience is that exchange of consciousness. Being able to take a dead person's thoughts and somehow upload them into my brain, but also writing as an exercise, especially when you are using sentences correctly, helps you better understand what you think in the moment. We talked about this earlier with the belief autolysis. And what you're doing is you're digesting your own thoughts Mm -hmm. as you write them down. And sometimes you realize the absurdity of your thoughts or how one thought can contradict itself from the beginning of the sentence to the end of the sentence. Or we often think in tautologies, right? And a tautology is just something that is self-referentially true. And so it is true in, in a way that makes sense, but it also doesn't make sense if you get outside of the tautology. And so yeah. what happens when we are breaking down English language and breaking down thought, the best way I've found to do that is through the written word. Conversely, I will say this. I think language is the greatest problem in human existence. And we're Mm. stuck with it. Mm. We would not have the same ruminating and anxiety and stress. No, we wouldn't have all the great accomplishments either. The, The beautiful buildings and the electrical outlets and the microphone I'm speaking into right now. But I think the greatest source of our suffering is our ability to constantly ruminate using these rudimentary sentences. But by getting them down onto the page, what happens is I'm able to declutter my thoughts. Yeah. It's like, in in, in a certain way, like language is the key that promises to liberate us from a prison that is made out of that very key itself. On one end, we can't escape language But at the same time, language is something that can be used to help us escape those constraints and find freedom that is often compromised by weaknesses in our language. Yeah. You're working on a book right now called Emotional Clutter. And I've noticed that what happens is if you were, not you personally, because you're probably an exception to this, but if you go tape the average person on the street and you hear you hear an hour of their conversation, and you just take the YouTube transcript of that and paste it into a Google Doc, it looks utterly insane. And that's what he's talking about here. We're not speaking in sentences, usually. Mm. TK is actually an exception to this, because uh, Professor Sean often transcribes his TikTok videos, and they're like flawless. TK does actually speak in s- sentences. But your average person, it's gobbledygook, it's tangential here. It's orthogonal there. It's moving from one point to a long parenthetical and then finally back to the same point. And what happens is by writing it down, getting the sentences onto the page, starting with simple sentences, 
you actually clarify your thoughts. I'm not sure what I think about this. If you're unsure of something, do that belief autolysis, get it onto the page. It will help you better understand your beliefs beliefs, and also the falseness of the beliefs that you're experiencing. And, and you know, it, it can be super easy to think that any amount of quibbling uh, over words that are used and the way in which sentences are structured is just nitpicking. It's just uh, pedantic. But man, when you think about anyone who has helped you get underneath the hood of a problem, anyone has, who has helped you see clearly what, what it often involves is, is, is the facilitating of new pathways of thought through modifications of language. You, you think about, for instance, when we first recognize that distinction between I am bad and I feel bad, or I am a screw up and I screwed up. That's a language uh, difference. That's a semantic problem. But when you make that semantic shift, there's a corresponding shift in thought. It's almost as if thoughts drag words along, but also words drag thoughts along, along. And you can't separate them. And when you change one, it changes the other. When you change the way you think, it does change the way you speak. But when you change the way you speak, it also can change the way you think and open you up to new possibilities. Yeah, it helps you better understand what you're focused on. Yep isn't worth focusing on necessarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you get it onto the page, you often cease to ruminate about it because it's now on the page and you've clarified it in a way that has given you what we call peace of mind or what Kapil Gupta will call no mind. You don't feel like I have to pay attention to this. It's no longer on my mind. So thanks for sharing that story with me. We'll try to find a link for this story. I don't know if there's probably a PDF version online. It's old enough that it's probably in Creative Commons or at least a, a link to the book. We'll put it in the show notes as well. That story definitely added value to my life. Speaking of adding value for our added value segment this week, I have two added values. The spirit of this segment that we do almost every episode is we find something that has added value to our lives. It could be a song, it could be a book, it could be a movie, it could be a material possession, it could be a piece of clothes, it could be a grounding mat, whatever it is. And if we find something that has added value to our lives, not as a recommendation that you should do this, but hey, I found value in this and you might too. If so, great. If not, that's totally fine. I have two things that have added value to my life recently. First, I want to talk about four things that have radically improved my health. So this is the first of our added value segment. I've gone through tremendous health struggles over the last five years with this autoimmune disease that I developed suddenly. And what happened is I started looking for a bunch of different answers and a bunch of things didn't add value to my life. They either didn't work or they made me worse or sort of got in the way of healing. But there were four things that have really helped facilitate my healing over the recent years. The first one is removing food clutter from my diet. Now, we did a whole episode with Dr. Saladino about this, episode 384. But ultimately, it was about four foods to remove, and it's really processed foods. So processed seed oils, anything in a package. I just removed anything processed from my life, which tremendously helped my health, improve my health, not through adding things in, but actually getting rid of the toxic things that were making me feel sick. The second thing that really helped me 
grounding or earthing. You can go to earthing.com and you can buy an earthing mat, not a sponsor of ours, but it's added tremendous value to my life. I sleep on an earthing mat every night in my bed. TK has one recently. I don't know if you started using it yet, but looking forward to hearing your experiences about that. We sit on earthing mats here at the studio, but also earthing or grounding is totally free. You can go to the beach or you can go to your backyard barefoot. What we did is we accidentally disconnected ourselves from the earth uh, with our rubber-soled shoes. And so we don't get those negative ion charges that we need throughout the day. We're disconnected from the earth. Mm. And so I've reconnected myself through grounding or Mm. through earthing. Uh, The third thing that has really helped me tremendously, ice baths. Some people just do cold showers. I've been doing ice baths for about a decade now, but got really serious about it a year ago. I do it every single day. I was in it this morning at around 4.30 a.m. before I drove down from Ojai here to Los Angeles to get here in the studio. And that ice bath is often the hardest thing I have to do all day. So there's a mental benefit to it as well. But it's really helped with my inflammation. It's reset my uh, heart rate as well. My resting heart rate is different. My heart rate variability is different. My sleep is different Mm. as well. I don't recommend that to anyone because I think the truth is most people are actually addicted to their suffering. Mm. And so I just talked about three things here that I think would radically improve the lives of just about anyone, even your average healthy person, if they remove processed foods from their diet, if they started grounding more regularly, and if they started doing some sort of cold water therapy, ice baths, whether it's you buy a trough, put it in your backyard, do cold showers, whatever, those things have benefits. And especially for someone who's suffering, it can ease your suffering, it removes some of that suffering. But I think there's a, a level where we actually enjoy, not even enjoy is the wrong word, but we become addicted to that suffering because this is part of my identity now. And so we're not willing to do the things that we want to do in order to ease the suffering. We need to do these things to get rid of the pain that we're experiencing. The fourth thing that I wanted to share with you, and I have shared with you in the past, Egoscue therapy, which I know you started doing recently after your car crash. Egoscue therapy is a guy named Pete Egoscue. He wrote a great book called Pain Free. And I used to get tremendous back pain, like nine or 10 out of 10 pain every morning, sciatic pain. It was awful. And then about half an hour a day, I started doing Egoscue therapy. And within six months, my entire life changed. I still do it every day now. It's about 15 minutes of maintenance every single day. And I no longer have back pain. I used to have tremendous back pain. And Agoscue therapy really helped me. But there was one thing it didn't help me with. And that's what brings me to today's added value video that I have. I have terrible ankle mobility. My ankles are super tight and it's hard for me to, to move them. It's hard for me to get into a squat position without my ankles really getting tight. And in fact, my ankles get so tight that my shins are the tightest. Oh, they're awful. It's like sinewy and so, so tight. And I have to get in there with elbows and tools until I found the right stretch to improve my ankle mobility. Let's take a look at this video real quick. Feet down flat like so sitting down as far as you can. It may help at first to also have a cushion between your heels and your bottom. And then just lifting one knee up. You can start with a really small range of motion. It might just be little like that. And then you're just slowly exploring. 
So if you're just listening to this, what we're looking at right now, by the way, I'll put a link to this. This is an Instagram video. We'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. I came across this. This is from the Foot Collective. I follow them on social media and I do different stretches of theirs. But this is a stretch I've been wanting to do because my quads get kind of tight. And I was like, oh, this stretch would be great for my quads. But no, this is actually a ankle stretch. So what you see in the video here is someone, maybe Mal, you could explain what you see here on the screen. Sure. The position that he's in is he is seated on his calves where you have your knees touching the ground and your the lower half of your legs are parallel and he's just sitting on his heels, the legs together. And what he's doing is he's just balancing himself with his hands on either side of his body mm-hmm. and lifting one knee up at a time as high as it's comfortable. And yeah, and you don't even yeah. have to do that step to start. In fact, I would encourage folks to avoid that step at first. So what I have to do, because I have one bad knee, I actually put a, a cushion or some sort of pillow, as he just mentioned, but between my butt and the my ankles, basically. And I sit back on that and I just stretch it. I feel the stretch. I'll do it every night. I've worked my way up to like nine or 10 minutes at a time. I started with one minute and one minute was excruciating at first. And so I just started real slowly. And now I am moving my knees up like that. And what's happening is I feel all this freedom in my ankles. The first day I did this, I woke up the next morning and I thought, what is wrong with my ankles? Where did the pain go? Mm. I was so used to intense pain. In fact, so much so that I started developing a giant cyst on top of my right foot. Ow. I started doing this. It's gone. It hasn't come back. Unbelievable. And so what has been great about this is, say you're watching TV at night. Okay, I can take five minutes, just do this one stretch, and I'm not missing out on anything. I'm just doing it while I'm doing something else. I'm getting the quad stretch. My ankles, it feels so good. And now I'm doing it every single night, sometimes two or three times a day. It has radically improved my ankle mobility, but also radically reduced the ankle pain that I experience almost every day. Man. That's so cool, man. I, I love <clears throat> I love your your commitment to your health. And and I know that it's a hard fought for a commitment. I know that it didn't come easy for you. And I think it can be easy for people on the outside to just be like, oh, he's so disciplined, mm-hmm. or oh, it's his personality type. But uh you've had your hat handed to you by the challenges of life many times in a way that you've uh dealt with so gracefully. And and it's and it's transformed you into the kind of person who said, I'm I'm gonna evolve and I'm gonna adapt. Uh, I'm not going to let this kill me. And I I just, I'm inspired by the way you're always finding something new and throwing yourself into something and experimenting and doing the best you can to optimize for your health, man. I think there's two sides of this as well. And the discipline side is doing the things you don't want to do because you want the outcome. So something like this, yeah, I'd rather just sit on the couch like a couch potato and not do the stretch, right? And so this is doing something that does require a small level of discipline, but there are the other things where it's, it doesn't actually require the discipline. It's the, it's, or it's the discipline of abstaining from something. I don't eat processed foods anymore, period. End of story. If something has seed oils in it, I just don't eat it. The, it's not an option. It's an, it's an abstaining. And so it doesn't take discipline to not put rocks in my mouth. I simply don't do it, right? Because I know rocks would harm me. The same way I know that seed oils harm me or certain processed foods will harm me, maybe not as quickly. And yes, it's less pleasurable to eat rocks than it is, say, a candy bar. But I know that that candy bar is simply not worth it. And so I'm abstaining 
not in a sense, I don't actually have to do anything. And that's freeing as well. I just, what did uh, Light call it last week? The the benefits of choicelessness. Mm. I know that it, that candy bar isn't even a choice for me. But see, that's something that I still haven't quite decoded or figured out a way to describe. And, I, and it's unique about you in this way because most people get to a state in life where some constraint is imposed upon them with such force that it becomes a choiceless thing. My father's in that situation with his health. There are certain things that he simply can't do. Doesn't matter how tempting it is. Doesn't matter how delicious it is. You can't do it. And when you get to that point where it's like, if you eat that, you'll die. If you drink that, you'll die. We have the ability to flip that switch. And it might be sad. We may not like it, but we say, okay, it's not an option. Why? Because the doctor told me I'll die if I do that. You have the ability to get there in your mind and somehow, in an unparalleled manner, sell yourself on the idea that something that you could technically choose to do and get away with, you convince yourself that it's not a choice at all. Like, like for you to take some of those things that you don't eat and put it on the same level of eating rocks, it's, it's profound because I know you believe that and mm. I know you live that. And from the outside looking in, it's not the same because you technically could do it, but you would say back to me, yeah, but I technically could eat the rock and they're the same in your mind. And I think, I think that's a, a really unique and powerful quality that you have. Um, it's, it's almost like it's not discipline because you look at the things that take you in the opposite direction of where you want to be and you just convince yourself, you push this little button you got somewhere uh, the superhero button and you convince yourself that you couldn't do it even if you wanted to. Well, I wanted to bring this up in context here because there are those four things that have radically improved my health. And I've seen it improve the health of a lot of people who are willing to have that choicelessness, to inject that choicelessness into their life. Like for me, the Agoscu therapy, I don't have a choice. I just get up and I do it every day. The ice bath, I don't have a choice. And when resistance pops up, it doesn't matter. You just keep walking through it, right? And, and it's like air. I don't have a problem walking through air. I just like the resistance. Yes, it shows up, but I just keep going because I don't have the choice. I remove the choice from my life so that I just do it. And I don't worry about it. I don't neurose over it. I don't even have to really think about it in a way. I'm on an autopilot. Now, yeah, of course, I'll go back and reevaluate and, and say, is this still serving me? But in the moment, I don't really have a choice. I've removed the choice. So those four things, removing the food clutter, beginning to go grounding and sleeping on a, a, a earthing mat, um, the Agoscu therapy that really helps with my back pain. Oh, tremendous, tremendous help. And those exercises are so simple that it almost feels like a scam at first because mm. what we're really doing is we're retraining our muscles that we stopped using for many years. And then the ice bath thing for me ha has helped tremendously or cold water therapy. And now this ankle stretch, it was one thing that Agoscu didn't have. They had, had this ankle stretch. We'll put a link to that video in the show notes. The song you now hear in the background, this is from my favorite album of the year so far. And it's total juvenilia. It's not like it's some highbrow art. But Bex and I have absolutely been just in loving driving around to this album. This one's from Gunna. The song you hear in the background is called Bread and Butter. It's from his new album. It's called A Gift and a Curse. There's a uh, line in here that reminds me of what we were talking about earlier with the Prince E video. They'll kill for clout, 
And it's like we're killing ourselves for attention. Quite literally, there are people who are committing crimes on Instagram or Facebook Live in order to get attention, to garner more followers, right? And the title of this album, A Gift and a Curse, I kind of feel that way. And we talked about it today with scarcity. Material possessions are a gift and a curse. When you see that photo and you can't identify one item that's in that photo, that's when the material possessions have become a curse. But when everything in my life serves a purpose, it amplifies my life, it enhances my experience of life, oh, what a gift it is to own the right things. So the song you hear right now, this is called Bread and Butter from Gunna. That's our Maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Love and light, my friends. Going all out when it's better bread and butter. The kill for cloud, I put that on my dead brother, yo He talk so much, I showed him I'm a real hunter Won't say it, but he know I still got real cutters, yo Yeah, I'm right back and I lost mad commas I had been down bad inside a dog tunnel, yo Fuck them boys, I found out who my real problems And who was only with me cause I had dollars Never fuck the nigga, always stay solid Keep it real with niggas, never lie, they always stay honest Love my bro so much, I never change on them. I'm the one to go and do the work, bring you the damn profits. Hustled on my own, I always didn't know how to sell product. Nigga ain't gave me shit, I grind so long, came from the damn bottle. Every nigga speaking on my name could have some real problems. We are not the same, ain't in my lane, I got my own column, yeah. Peeping shit, I'm seeing niggas fall back. You bitch ass niggas got me at the topic of the chat. You switched on me when you know you in business with a rat. And the boy that's like your brother, ain't nobody speak on that. The city see it clearly if I had a state of fact. You still fuck with a nigga that done got your partner with. How these niggas talking only knew him cause it's slack. You rap but need more streams, how do you put my name on wax? You ain't even believe, I ain't have to watch my back. It's niggas really talking, how you think we done got snatched? Nobody sent the kite, I said and roll way to get back. This shit done got off track, let's get it back on track. Going all out when it's by that bread and butter. The kill for cloud, I put that on my dead brother, yo. He talk so much, I showed him I'm a real hunter. Won't say it, but he know I still got real cutters, y'all. Yeah, I'm right back and I lost mad commas. I had been down bad inside a dog tunnel, y'all. Fuck them boys, I found out who my real problems. And who was only with me cause I had dollars, y'all. Fuck, I paid the lawyers all the meals for. Just so I won't have to say a word that that's your railroad. Niggas find it hard to understand, though. Dog ain't put me down, I been locked down, don't know which way to go. Never gave no statement, no agree to take no stand on them. On whatever you niggas on it, trust me, I'ma stand on it. Lawyers in the DA did some sneaky shit, I fell for it. On my P's and Cuba, cause this time I be prepared for it, yo. Post shiny niggas throwing shade, though. I can get on here, but I'ma just chillin', just see how I go. But they say you want some smoke with me, ain't in my time zone. Any given day, I could just pop out one of them side doors. Gonna eat too slick, you ain't gonna know which way I played. Shit too hot, I can't even put no money on. Pulling up, pop out like what the fuck you niggas said Ain't with all that talking, it's the last time I'ma say I don't think I'm sick the way I keep popping these meds I finally found out it's just the way the devil dance Had too many niggas run I bet that bit my hand I got too many folks to feed you just don't understand yeah. Going all out when it's by that bread and butter 
that Kipper Cloud, I put that on my dad, brother, yeah He talk so much, I showed him I'm a real hunter Won't say it, but he know I still got real cutters, yeah Yeah, I'm right back and I lost mad commas I had been down bad inside a dog tunnel, yeah Fuck them boys, I found out who my real problems And who was only with me cause I had dollars, yeah